Ed, we're recording this a week and a half before the World Cup. Have you got World Cup fever yet? I think I do, actually, yeah. It's that time of year when I watch a ridiculous amount of football, or that time of the the the, the epoch that we're in. So once every other year, there's a tournament on and you're allowed to watch like three games a day. Uh, funnily enough, I'm not far off that anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when you say the time of the year that you watch a lot of football, do you mean like Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, yeah mind you, actually, a Sunday you can watch uh, uh, Australian football first thing in the morning and Brazilian or American football last thing at night. Have you ever done that? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. uh, it is worrying that I know the schedule like that. But uh, yeah, there you go. Anyway, so yeah, the World Cup. And, and the good thing about this is there's uh, that clash of styles, uh, teams you don't really know much about normally, a lot of players you don't always see, although... Of course, the the game is so globalised these days that, that many of the best players in Europe. But the thing about the World Cup is there are those uh, squads that have lots and lots of players that are not playing in Europe. And that's uh, that's what makes it exciting sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And even those that are playing in Europe, I mean, you, you watch an awful lot of football, as we've just discussed. But those of us who maybe are a bit more parochial and tend to just watch a lot of United, uh, there's there's a lot of players that I'm not super familiar with. And also there's, there's players playing all around Europe. Even you probably don't actually watch Russian football, except when it's uh, the Champions League. And, nope. and a lot of players playing in Russia, players, players playing all over the world. And, and lots of players playing in the South American and Central American leagues that we, we don't know much about. Even many many of the, the Central American teams have players playing in uh, the MLS as well. So Very true, yeah. So, so now we've got our Alan Shearer moment out of the way and say, we don't know anything, ho, ho, ho. Which, uh, I, what's your book on that? When When's the first time that Alan Shearer admits that he knows nothing about football? Um, I mean, pretty early doors, I reckon. The opening game uh, is between Brazil and Croatia. We're going to be, t- to be honest, he's going to have to do a job to claim not to know anything about uh, about Brazil or Croatia because there's there's a lot of players that have, that he'll know in that. Yes, Mexico and Cameroon the day after. Yeah, he might struggle with a little bit. Uh, so anyway, look, we've uh, we've made an effort to do some research for this show in depth, I have to say, and um, and hopefully we do know something about the world of football. There are many players we know better than others, but uh, our attempt today is to preview the tournament and talk through some of our thoughts about each of the groups. Uh, we have some expertise in house, and and we'll we'll do some predictions, will we, by the end of the show? Yeah. Who's going to win? Top goal scorer, best player, dark horse, you know that kind of thing. And we'll take some of your Twitter questions. There's quite a few this week, as always, and uh, I think it'll be fun. I, I'm looking forward to it. And and you know the thing is. Since no football has happened, there's nothing for us to moan about. Nothing at all. I know, I was kind of annoyed about what David Moyes said. No, no, stop. Stop right there. Emergency breaks on. I'm not talking about David Moyes ever again. <laughs> um, so, 
yeah, it's all set up to be a pretty interesting World Cup. There, there are lots and lots of different styles of teams in this World Cup. I think, you know, we saw in South Africa 2010 that the, the real emergence of the 4-2-3-1, right, that became the dominant theme in world football at that time. And, and the fact that Spain have won three international tournaments in a row might might have led to Tiki Taka sweeping forth and conquering all. But, but there's probably only a small handful of sides at the World Cup that you would say actually play that style. Um, so I, I think I think we are in for we're in for a bit of a treat in terms of the way it all gets mixed up. Yeah, well, really only Spain. I, I think. I mean, uh, of the teams that do play you know, high possession football, it, Holland will be one under Van Hal, who's who's very much of that philosophy, in, or in fact instigated it. Many would say the father of it. Uh, and um, Brazil, to some extent, although of course they use width uh, considerably. Uh, Brazil, even this Brazil team, and we'll, we'll get onto them in a bit. Um, and uh, I suppose Chile have a have a possession based game, and there's a few others, but uh, I think Spain will still stand out, and that, that's interesting given how much they've dominated that the world hasn't followed them. In fact, um, I think it's fair to argue that there's been more of a reaction against Tiki Taka and a way to beat it then there has been a, a kind of following of it. Yeah, because I think it, it really... I mean, that, that Spain style did not happen by accident, did it? You say Louis van Gaal was in many ways the father of that style, and, and you know, that's a style that's born out of La Masia, isn't it? That the, this Spain, the Spain side that has swept all before it is one that has grown very organically, learning to play that style from a very young age. So actually, if that was going to have an effect, you'd expect it to take a generation in a lot of ways to, to kick in. Um, a little word on the, the angle of our coverage... So so if you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that normally what we do is talk about Manchester United exclusively. We're going to have a little Manchester United angle where there is one. Uh, we'll definitely be covering the United players in slightly more detail, but there should be something in this for you if you're not a Manchester United fan, because we're not going to be myopic about this. There'll be no... Nece- not necessarily automatically just ruling out the quality of any players just because they play for Liverpool. Although, can't promise that. Well... <laughs> no, come on, come on. Yeah. No, let, let, let's be sensible about this. Oh, jeez. Uh, Liverpool didn't qualify for the World Cup. Just, just. No, just very, very good point. All right, so should we, uh, should we crack on and go, go through these groups then and have a, have a look at these teams? Well, yep, yeah, you're with us for Group A. So Brazil, Croatia, Mexico, and Cameroon. There's some good stuff in there. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it starts at the top, right? You would imagine that if Brazil don't top this group, it's going to be perceived as an absolute disaster. There is some quality throughout the group. I, I think Cameroon is... In a, they really struggle to qualify. In a lot of ways, it's the weakest Cameroon side uh, that have been at the World Cup for quite some time. They just they have a reputation in the World Cup because of Italia 90 and, and because it took us so much by surprise. But it's not actually borne out by their kind of long-term relationship with the World Cup. They've they've played a lot of games in the World Cup and they have not won very many at all. Um, so let's start at the top. We, we start with uh, the team that everyone is expecting to win, the host nation. Uh, if not expecting to win the tournament, then at least expecting them to win this group. And rightly so, because they are an absolute cut above the rest of the group. Um, I would say, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, that they're we've we've gone through each of the teams we've picked out some information about the coach a few top players a few potential weaknesses um and and that sort of thing so Phil Scolari the coach of Brazil once again 
coached them to the 2002 World Cup glory um, and has kind of rebuilt Brazil really and, and given them back some confidence. Mauro Menezes uh, was the, the previous coach and did not do a very good job and was not well liked. They've struggled because they've not played any competitive football in the lead up to this tournament and in South American qualifying that means you don't play any competitive football for like three years essentially um, in Europe you would only miss out on one set of qualifying but South American qualifying takes a lot longer so Brazil have plummeted down the world rankings which is kind of irrelevant but they it's just because they haven't they haven't played any competitive matches I think that the expectations were raised by the confederations cup performance last summer right they answered a lot of questions in that tournament and I was really impressed with them then what did you think yeah I thought they were an excellent side and interesting kind of tactical formation as well I mean nominally you'd kind of pull them up as a 4-2-3-1 the ubiquitous 4-2-3-1 but not really and the way they executed it was very different very vibrant very attacking I thought more attacking than some Brazil sides of recent years that had become very very European they felt like they had an identity I thought they were great in the final against Spain um, they've got some very very talented players some surprising players as well you know uh, certainly their forward you wouldn't really you know, Neymar accepted you, you don't really think of too many of their forwards as classic Brazilian forwards but they're very very strong through midfield strong at the back too and um, goalkeeper might be an issue because Julio Cesar is obviously uh, had to move over to the MLS, and uh, he was not even in the QPR side. Uh, their backups are awful. Jefferson, Victor, I, I can't actually remember who's in the squad. You'll know better than me. Victor, I don't know whether you've ever checked this one out, Paul, but he is a spitting image of Petr Cech. I reckon they might be the same person. <laughs> Except he's not as good as Petr Cech, which sort of, he's like, maybe he's Petr Cech's bad twin brother. I mean, their real strength is, they've got phenomenal centre-halves, actually. I mean, David Luiz, you could potentially say is a bit of a liability waiting to happen, but he's a fine player and he excels for the national team. You know, playing for Brazil, it's not like playing for other countries. It really isn't. There's a different relationship with the national team in Brazil. Other places too, but in Brazil in particular, Thiago Silva, one of the best centre-backs in the world. Neymar, fascinating, fascinating. And, and, you know, on the back of the Confederations Cup, it looked like Barcelona would basically be cheating to play Messi and Neymar in the same team. As it turns out, they were cheating in a way they bought Neymar, but we won't dwell on that. He has done pretty okay in his first season in Europe. And given he's a very young man moving halfway around the world, that is a big deal just to do okay. Yeah, and he scores bags and bags of goals. He's got 30 at international level already. He's only 22. So and and he rarely plays right through the center either. He'll almost certainly come off the left, and 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 you know he's a he's a huge amount of danger. I think I think their trouble is with the center forward. I mean, is it going to be Fred? Uh, do they play Joe up there? Do they play Hulk? Do they play someone else? I mean, what do you think? I think they won't play. I think they don't play a four three two three one as you said. They I think they play in a four three three, and it will be Uke on the left and Neymar on the right, or the other way round, and Fred through the middle. I think that's what they did in the Confederations Cup a lot of the time. Um, it, it's interesting because Hulk, you wouldn't even. I tried fancy proper pronunciation a second ago, but I'm I'm relapsing to Hulk. Um, you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be effective on the left because he's a such a big lad and you kind of think of him as a number nine. But he, he did a really good job in the Confederations Cup for Brazil and he's he's well-liked by Scolari, isn't he? And and Fred scored a hatful as well. Like, with that kind of creativity, it's not like Fred's incompetent, is it? You know, I mean, Joe, you'd worry about... 
But I feel like they're all right in terms of first choice number nine. Yeah, he's a good player and plays domestically. Uh, he's experienced. He's uh, he gives them a plan B, doesn't he? Because he's he's a physical presence as well. Uh, so you know they can keep him fit, which presumably they will. I think there's plenty of goals from elsewhere, you know. But but it, he's not Ronaldo, right? Fat Ronaldo. And no, no, very not. That's that's the comparison that everyone has when it comes to a, a Brazilian number nine. Anyway, so that's Brazil. What about the others? Mexico any good? I mean, uh, we know a little bit about Mexico, don't we? Just a couple more things about Brazil before we move on from them. I just think it's worth shouting out their fullbacks as well. Marcelo on one side and Dani Alves on the other. That that is a pretty even death. Dani Alves might not quite be at his best anymore but that's some fine attacking fullbacks they've got there and uh, Oscar massive massive talent creative talent as well and um, no United interest uh, although they've got some central midfielders we should maybe be thinking about you say that about most teams in the tournament most teams in this World Cup have got better central midfielders than us funny that um, actually Scolari said uh, not long ago I mean he was asked about Raphael and uh, effectively said that Raphael was mile, miles away from the squad. Miles and miles away from the squad. So there you go. That was our closest. Anderson hasn't played for the Brazilian team for about four years now. Raphael for three. Same with Fabio. Of course, not United player anymore. So, yeah, no United interest at all in the Brazilian squad, even though we've got about 15 at United. Um, and, and a little odd fact for you. Um, I don't know if this is particularly odd, but it's a, a fun fact. Actually, I don't know if it's Look, it's just a fact, all right? Phil Scolari is super, super Catholic. So you are definitely going to get a pilgrimage or two out of Scolari. He goes on, like, walking tours to local Catholic churches and stuff. And... I was going to say, what are you going to say there? <laughs> and this is uh, walking tours to local what? No, no, no. No, this is all good and holy. Uh, you know, he goes and makes offerings and stuff before major matches. And in thanks in 2002, he went on a walking pilgrimage and stuff. So a man who takes his faith very seriously, which leads us nicely to Mexico, um, which, of course, feature a player who takes his faith very seriously. They limped through qualifying, um, only just recovering from having given Sven Joran Eriksson the job of manager a few years ago that surely can't have been a good idea um, and have just suffered a massive blow uh, with the injury of Luis Montes uh, really brutal injury I don't know if you saw any of the Mexico Mexico Ecuador friendly but he scored a stunning goal and then broke his leg about 30 seconds later so it's, it's absolutely brutal um, so he's out um, and he was likely to start in midfield for Mexico and, and they don't have phenomenal strength in depth and, and they've really struggled in qualifying but I think that actually they're better than their qualifying qualifying campaign would suggest and Miguel Herrera has stepped in to take over as manager he's got this odd thing where basically he has a good working relationship with the home-based players and less of a relationship with the sort of superstar Mexican players who are playing away in Europe which uh, Chicharito has found to his cost right yeah been out of the side recently but but of course you know, Peralta is you know a fine forward and I think I don't know whether you've caught much of him but I think we might find at the World Cup that he's one of the better players not to be playing at a big European club. I mean, getting on a bit now, so maybe his chance of moving to Europe is is gone. And of course, a lot of yeah, traditionally a lot of Mexican players have played at home because it's quite a wealthy league, and there's been less of the incentive to to shift over to Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Higuera likes five three two. So it's going to be interesting. To, there's not going to be a lot of teams playing three at the back, but Mexico might just be one. Their best players, you know, Hernandez doesn't get in the first team, 
all the time, but he's definitely one of their best players. Giovanni Dos Santos, uh, again, a, a fine forward. Some issues with Herrera there. And uh, as you say, Oribe Peralta has been... He's been en fuego for less trees. Less tries? I don't know. It just means the threes because of the three colours in the Mexican flag. United interest, of course, comes from little Chicharito Hernandez, but how much longer is that going to be United interest, I wonder? Not much. One suspects, of course, he joined just before the World Cup last time out. Yeah, he did, and it was exciting to see him because we have we both made fun of that signing, Ed. You see that um, top 10 goals that was on YouTube at the time, and one of them looked like it just hit the back of his head and gone in. Little did we know that was his special move at the time. Yep, yep, X, Y, X, Y. Yeah. <laughs> Triangle square hit, hit your face and bounces in Alright do you want a fun fact about Mexico go, uh, This is genuinely it. a fun fact uh, Miguel Herrera was a player Played for Mexico but he missed out on the USA 94 World Cup because he punched A photographer during a game In a league match Like Not even like a paparazzo that was bothering him Away from the match But actually punched a photographer during the game So That's awesome That's good isn't it I, That's the kind of action I like to see <laughs> So uh, we come now to talk about the the, the third team in Group A, uh, Croatia, which is kind of an interesting one, really, because no one's really talking about Croatia, even as a dark horse. But actually, that is a squad that has got talent laced through it. Um, Niko Kovac is their kind of legendary Croatia captain. He's replaced Igor Stimac, who was extremely unpopular and saw Croatia fail to get through the group automatically. They had to play a playoff against Iceland and it was it was even touch and go in that in that playoff, but Croatia made it through. Uh, Niko Kovac, a completely inexperienced coach, but but loads and loads of caps, 83 caps for Croatia and former captain of the national side. No question about who their best player is for me, uh, and that's Luka Modric. But I think Luka Modric is in like the top, I don't know, thirty best players in the world or something. Maybe maybe fewer than that. Well, it's not, it's not just Modric that will give them quality in midfield, though. I mean, they've got Rakitic, who had an outstanding Europa League campaign, uh, outstanding in Spain too. Mateo Kovacic, the Inter player, fine young player. I know a lot of people like him. Um, and, and then up front, Mandzukic and Jelovic and uh, Eduardo, I think you can forget, and Olic is old now, but, but you know, they've got they've got talent there, haven't they? Well, I think Mandzukic is a, a cut above the rest of their forwards. I mean, Jelovic is, is a good centre-forward, but Mandzukic is, like, genuine quality, isn't he? Um, and I think I think you're right about Rakitic. Like, the, the, the thing about Rakitic is he's... He is kind of a number 10, right? And so he, he really needs to be playing the furthest forward of, of that midfield um, and not being asked to do too much defensively. But when he does, when he gets to play creatively, he's like, fantastic. He? And, and that's actually not how Croatia have used him a lot. So, you know, we'll no. see. So, look, what, what about this, this funny chap in midfield? Uh, called Mate Males. What, what, what's that all about? <laughs> I have no I idea. Mean, is that a call to action or what? I find that name to be regular. Um, there, there's... To me, like I was looking at that squad, and I cannot see a massive obvious weakness. A decent goalkeeper, decent centre halves, very fine midfielders, very fine up front. Like maybe a lack of depth up front. The fullbacks, not not totally convinced by the fullbacks, but haven't seen a ton of them. Dario Serna is like getting on a bit now. Uh, Pranic don't know too much about. There you go. There's a Shearer thing, but you know. 
Uh, but Lovren had a, an excellent season yeah. for Southampton, so you know we we know there's some quality there. So yeah, no, I think I think they're a good they're a good side, and they're definitely in with a shout to to come out of that group. Yeah, it's a favourable draw, right? I mean, you let's assume that on the opening day Brazil beat them. It's always very difficult when you're the team that loses your opening game. Um, but even if that happens, they, they've definitely got enough about them to beat. Not that, like I'm saying, it's a foregone conclusion that it'd be Mexico and Cameroon, but you wouldn't be completely shocked to see that happen. Right. All right fun fact about Croatia. Uh, there's no United link. There should have been a United link because we should have bought Luka Modric about five years ago. But apart from that, no no United link. Um and a nice odd fact, uh, Croatia are at the World Cup in spite of the fact that they lost to Scotland twice in qualifying, which to me is like you should definitely be instantly disqualified from the World Cup if you lose to Scotland twice in the World Cup qualifying campaign. But It always happens to the Scots, of course, famously, famously beat England in 1967, therefore claiming world championships. They beat Croatia twice. Croatia are going to lose to Brazil. Brazil are going to win the World Cup. It effectively makes Scotland world champions. No question about it. Uh, just very briefly then, Cameroon, and, and sorry to do them a, a discredit and not give them in-depth coverage, but but genuine... Yaya Torre wouldn't be happy. I mean, this is disgraceful. No, well, Yaya Torre would be very happy when he hears me talking about him in a little bit, but the, the Cameroon national side is probably the weakest of the African sides uh, in the tournament. Coached by uh, an elderly German man, as for some reason seems to happen a lot in Cameroon, uh, Volker Finke is, is, the, is the coach. And they limped through qualifying. Cameroon's really been in a pretty rough spot and there's a bunch and bunch of uh, divisions within the Cameroonian squad. Samuel Etu's huge kind of dominant, dominant personality in that group. Uh, he's very much the man. He, he gets his way a lot and it, it does put other players' noses out of joint. They, they've got some some very decent players. Alex Song uh, at Barcelona. But I'd say that you could argue they've got problems in, in goal. They've got problems in defence. Uh, although they do have the, the lovely Benoit Asokotu. Um, he's not likely to start, but he's, he's a fine player. I think basically... Apart from maybe in the centre of midfield and up front, you could argue that there are problems pretty much everywhere in that Cameroon squad. And even up front, I mean, Samuel Eto's proved he can still do it, but he's definitely getting on a bit now, isn't he? Mm. One of the central defenders called Gesson Bong. I mean, there's another call to action for you, isn't it? You know that making fun of funny foreign names is not is now frowned upon in 20... There's one of the differences between the 2014 and, you know, 1956-54 World Cup period. Well, are they thinkers or are they doers? We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, so my predictions for that group is that Brazil will go through ahead of Croatia, but we will see her definitely certainly not writing it off the Mexicans. So, Ed, tell us about Group B. Group of death-ish. Well, for the Australians, anyway. <laughs> group of brutally murdered Australians. Yeah, so this is a t- tough one for Australia. Spain, Netherlands, Chile and Australia. And, and it's probably the worst Australian side in a while. And uh, of course, they look, they qualified uh, decently and now qualified through Asia. But um, I don't think anyone thinks that this Australian side have uh, got much hope. Uh, I'll get on to Australia in a bit, but let's look at the favourites. Spain, obviously double European and world champions. There is still in with a shout, but... I have to say my suspicion is that this is one tournament too many for them. Not only is it is it in Brazil, 
away from Europe and uh, and Brazil have a very good side but um, I think they've just got too many problems through this Spain squad and too many question marks uh, over some key areas to to not think that this is probably one too many for them so they've still got the core but the core through midfield is going to be Busquets uh, and Xavi uh, you know, Busquets has, having played about 60 games every season for the last five years. Xavi now well into his 30s. Other key players, Iniesta also into his 30s. Uh, can they get Diego Costa fit? He's the man who gives them a plan B. Otherwise, they're looking at David Villa or maybe they'll play Fabregas up front like they did last time out. It has its problems playing the false nine there. Torres doesn't look like he hit the backside of a cow these days. So lots and lots of problems, I think. Uh, for Spain, they're still very, very high quality. They're still going to play the way they play. It's a very economical way of playing. They'll keep possession. They will dominate in many sides. Uh, that opening game against Netherlands is a crucial one, though, because the loser is probably going to play Spain, sorry, Brazil, in the, the round of 16. So, you know, Spain need to get a result there, don't they, in order to not play Brazil next. Um, and if they don't, then then the uh, the path is a lot easier for them. If they don't, beat Netherlands and if somehow they come second then they've got some problems um United interest plenty of United interest David Hale will be third keeper uh, I mean he's going to be there watching the beach isn't he and and Juan Mata is unlikely to start any of the games I mean maybe the third one if it's a, a dead rubber but uh, I was almost and um, we had this conversation before uh, I was a little bit surprised that Mata made it. Not not because of the latter quality, but just there are so many players of a similar ilk in the squad. I mean, there's Iniesta, Mata, Cazorla, David Silva, uh, lots and lots and lots of playmakers. Uh, Jesus Navas didn't make it, so the plan B in wide areas is, is no longer there. They have no plan B. I mean, they've got lots and lots of diddy men, basically, in through midfield, and uh, they'll be playing their tippy-tappy as uh, those detractors like to call it. So this is it. It has to work for them. And and Diego Costa's different uh, in that, I mean, not only is he a real physical presence, but uh, he's going to provide them with an option in the air too. Not that they'll go for it very often. It's really, I'm really fascinated to see how, because I I think my my instinct about this is that you're um, sort of almost, not, not quite writing them off, but you're sort of slightly... You've, you basically think this is going to be a bridge too far, which I think a lot of people thought before Euro 2012 as well. There was a lot of discussion about where goals were going to come from in Euro 2012. And in the end, a lot of them did come from Fernando Torres. Finished that, to- that tournament as top goal scorer by sort of cheating, getting an assist in the last minute of uh, of the game and that, and that counted. And they sort of flattered to deceive in Euro 2012, really. They, they they didn't come to life until the final. And th- that final against right. Italy is one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen in a football match. And if they can build their way through the tournament, as you say, like I think one of the reasons that, that Spain have been so successful is because that style is so economical. And economical football is incredibly beneficial in a tournament setting because stamina is vital. I, th- I think... People yep, really yep. underestimate how much a difficult early draw. The problem isn't just that you have to beat good teams early on, because you'd always say, well, you're going to have to beat good teams eventually. But you're much better off playing those good teams if they've played a bunch of other good teams before they come and play against you. And I think, 
you know, if Brazil meets Spain in that second round, Brazil have got a pretty big edge because that means they've probably had easier passage through the first round. Well, yes. So, so my worry for Spain is is that as it gets towards the latter part of the tournament, that they will run out of legs because some of their key players are, are aging. I mean, Alonso Busquets, not not old, but has played a lot, a lot of football, um, and Javi. So that's the problem. Where how do they? change it when Javi's not playing is it matter they bring in is it Cazorla um, do they tuck David Silver inside I suspect they'll probably use him more in a wide area who are the two they play in wide areas because it's not the same they do not have the speed merchants uh, in in Pedro and Jesus Navas you know it's, they don't have that option so they have lots and lots of very similar players I was a little bit surprised at the makeup of the squad as a result so they also have got fast fullbacks haven't they and that I mean, well, but they've got they, you know an issue at fullback in that uh, although Alba will almost certainly start a left back and he's a very fine player indeed. Carver Howell probably come into right back and I'm not I'm not sure that he's a, a world class answer to that yeah. position. It's been a bit of a problem for for Spain and and you know look it, the two in the middle um, in Ramos and PK are, are high quality, very good on the ball. Ramos gets a lot of goals from set pieces as as we saw in the. Champions League final. Um, in they've got three high quality goalkeepers in in Reina, De Gea, and Casillas who will start obviously. Uh, so lots and lots of strength, some question marks, and I think those question marks will be kind of much bigger as the tournament gets later on. Of course, you know, it it really could end early for them if if Holland pull off a shock in that opening game. My last question is: You seem absolutely certain that De Gea is third choice. I mean, to me, like De Gea would be instant no competition without question first choice in that out of those three keepers like the season that the three of those keepers have all just had De Gea's had by far and away the best season of all of them and I think he's probably as good if not higher quality well definitely think he's better than Reina and like the very best of De Gea is probably very the better than the best of Casillas at this point. Is it just a question of experience and status? Yeah. Uh, so Casillas is is Mister Spain and Mister Real Madrid. So I mean, he's had two dodgy years, Casillas. And let's be honest, there there are re- it's not just politics. There are reasons why he's been dropped by two managers now. But I think it's a, it's an absolute certainty. I mean, he's got 150 odd caps. He, he's most definitely going to play. Uh, De Gea may well be the obvious choice to take over. We'll see what Casillas does after the World Cup. I mean, he's still only in his early 30s, right? You know, He's got to move, surely. He can't spend another season just playing in the Champions League. All right, they won the Champions League, but like, it's ridiculous that he, you say he's Mr. Real Madrid, but he's barely played a game in the league. Why well, he didn't play any games in the... Let's say he plays in the Cups. He plays in the Cups, so he's getting 20-something games a year, yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, so, Holland... Mr. Manchester United, Louis van Gaal, uh, will be uh, taking our get it wide, get it in, son, <laughs> tactics to the World Cup. Well, no, he won't. Um, so, you know, he is, I said it earlier, he's basically Mr. Tiki Taka. His, his teams play a lot of possession football. His teams tend to play like Barca played about five years ago. You know, that Barca side that won the treble, they played with a lot of width as well as possession football, and and, uh, that's the way Holland have tended to play through a very good qualification campaign. Now, they've played in a couple of friendlies now with uh, sort of 3-5-2 or 5-3-2, however you want to call it, which is a bit different, and Van Gaal's talked about that 
uh, doing that to give uh, per- Van Persie and and Robin a bit more space in attacking areas. We'll see. They maybe they'll do that in the opening game because it gives them some defensive security because he's also going to play with two holding players by the looks of it. Uh, five defenders, two holding players. Hmm, interesting. Uh, not exactly total football, is it? Uh, and and th- we'll wonder whether they'll transition into the four three three after that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, look, they've got lots and lots of quality. Holland but it's also a pretty inexperienced Holland side compared to many of those uh, in the past you know lots of kids in this this uh, squad too um, they may well end up playing in that in that back three two twenty somethings and Ron Vlaar Oof, that that feels a bit dodgy to me and just because even though they're they're very high quality players uh, the the chances of producing that in a tournament setting you know smaller van Hal's the man to extract it of course he knows how to do it he's a big game manager uh, he's he's had some international experience before this uh, failed somewhat with holland before but uh, if he's a man to have a plan yeah he's one of the most tactically astute uh, managers in this world cup he's also a brilliant strategist uh, you know can he get more than the sum of the parts out of this netherlands side that isn't full of loads and loads of star names i mean it's really problematic the draw isn't it because i mean you're not we'll talk about chile next but the very very likely scenario in this looks like netherlands are either going to play well i mean you'd expect that that if everything goes as it really should go according to form netherlands are going to play brazil in the second round of the world cup and that's kind of like classic classic world cup stuff isn't it holland against brazil but it does mean that they're going to have to do... They're either going to have to beat Spain or they're going to have to beat Brazil within their first four games of the tournament. Yeah, and and that might be a stretch. But but and I think that's one of the reasons why he's talking about more space for the fours. Actually, what he means there is that they're going to play on the break a little bit more and maybe they'll give up some of the position. I mean, it, it's also about who they're going to play in midfield without Strootman. Uh, he's snapped his anterior cruciate ligament which is you know a major blow for him because he's had such a good season with Roma before that I have to say a couple of years ago I had my doubts about him he was linked with United then as he is now and I wasn't sure that he was quite good enough for United that's perhaps the reason why he went to Roma and not one of Europe's top clubs but he's kind of proven himself I think in the last couple of seasons been outstanding he's been the really key man in midfield for Holland and the fact that he's missing as much as anything he's prompting a tactical shift from Van Hal, I think and and they'll probably play a couple of players in there that aren't super experienced I mean De Jong will probably start now he might not have done before Jordi Classy uh, the Feyenoord midfielder looks very classy um, I have to say I've been impressed with the, the, the few games I've seen of him so far uh, I mean Robin clearly probably play up front rather than on the wings more in a, a classic two by the looks of it with Van Persie there's some interesting defenders at the back uh, you know Bruno's Martins Indy looks really good doesn't he I don't know whether you've seen I love that kid I want him so bad not because like how good he is but there's just this amazing article in the Guardian about how everybody loves him and he's like this super laid back really lovely fella and he jumped into Louis van Gaal's arms the other day yeah no and he looks a very classy player and he, he could play with Ron Vlaar and, and probably Veltman although Daly Blind has played quite a few games recently although he's played in midfield so Danny Blind's son um, I think he might end up playing as a holding man uh, in midfield, which is, you know, not necessarily his, or he might play at left back, right? It's, they, they, have, they haven't quite worked this one out yet. And that, that's one of the question marks around Holland as well. A lot of young players, 
don't feel like they're certain in every position, even though they had an excellent qualifying campaign. So definitely some question marks over Holland. What they haven't got is this kind of uh, propensity to combust. I do I do not think this is a group that's going to fall apart. They've actually got a lot of players that are uh, based in Holland. Um, they don't appear to be the tensions that have been the classic kind of infighting. Uh, Van Hal is a very strong personality. He's the general here. You know, he's wearing the trousers and everyone's following him. And so I think this is a team that's together, but it's a it's a super, super difficult draw for them. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by, I mean, obviously, like I was just about to say, any United interest in this one, Ed? J- just a little yeah. bit. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Well, aside from the actual United interest in, in Robin Van Persie, there's also about 15 of the squad who have been linked in some way by the Red Tops to uh, Manchester United bid. So uh, Wesley Schneider. Really won't he? <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a joke uh, earlier today uh, about United's summer prospects on Twitter, uh, which culminated in a last-minute bid for Wesley Schneider. Still could still happen. Um, obviously, Bruno's Martins Indy has been linked. Uh, there's been some talk about David Blind. Memphis. Uh, Jordi Classy and Memphis, the, the forward. Uh, Memphis Depe, a very young man, a very exciting player as well, I have to say. So, yeah, maybe United will end up with five Dutchmen next season. Probably not, given the way the market works out. But, but yeah, some definite United interest. I think lots and lots of people will be watching them with interest. Obviously, MUTV have been showing some of their friendlies in the build-up to the World Cup. Tells you something. Um, and a bit, of, a bit of internal conflict, of course. Uh, it would suit United very well for Holland to crash out of the World Cup early so Van Hal can start his real job a bit quicker. I mean, my... I've, Glorious failure is the best option for United fans, like because we don't want him coming back under a cloud, having failed to get through the group. I don't think, but having kind of bravely got through the group, only to be pipped by a last-minute Brazil goal, that sounds just about ideal. It does indeed. Um, elsewhere, Chile. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember catching Chile versus England a few months back. Potentially an outstanding yeah. team there. I do think they have some problems. So uh, the defence is definitely yeah. a problem. They have no height at the back. That uh, they're going to be vulnerable to set pieces. Not that Spain and Holland lump it in the box very often, but they really don't have anyone. You know, they're all ball players. So Gary Mendel will play at the back, and he's about four foot two. And uh, they often play with three four three as a system. You don't see that very often. Don't always. I mean, I think they'll switch between four and a three depending on who they're playing. Um, they may well play the three in their two tougher games against Holland, and then switch to a four uh, in their final game or in their game against Australia. Um, but they're one of the most tactically flexible sides I think you'll see in the World Cup. They switch between all of them in-game as well. So watch for when they play three at the back and they're, they're, the two wide men split very, very wide. That's them widening the pitch as, uh, as far as they possibly can in order to retain possession. They're definitely a possession side. Uh, in in Matas Fernandez and Arturo Vidal have got some very high quality in central midfield and Alexis Sanchez scores bags and bags of goals at international level quite a few at, at club level too you know plenty of attacking talent there he may well play fairly centrally for Chile think they'll be a very good side and and even if they don't progress they're going to be very good to look at yeah and I mean out of all the groups like this group six of the fixtures in this group look mouth-watering right not very often you get fixtures not just because they're good teams but the way they're going to stack up against each other is really fascinating I mean Chile and Spain are a really good match for each other aren't they yeah I think I think there's actually going to be some I mean I know some people don't like tiki-taka they think it's boring I think there's more to it than that because there's a lot of attacking players I actually think Chile could be more dynamic than Spain 
because of the nature of the type of players they've got they've got more possibility to play through the transition right so they've got more pace in the side uh, than Spain do uh, that which will be I'm not saying they're a better side by any means I'm just saying they, they're going to play with some interesting um, tactical variations that Spain maybe won't um, but, you know, I, I think you're right. I think there's some really excellent games uh, in this group. Australia are definitely the outsiders, well outsiders as well. I do not think this is a good Australian side. They've you know, actually got a few players who play in the A-League in the squad that will tell you something about it. Up front, they've got all sorts of problems. I mean, will they play Cahill up front on his own? Does Josh Kennedy play, the veteran, I mean, now playing in Japan? One player I do like, the... The Celtic player Thomas Rodic, he's a kind of, you'd almost say he's a classic number 10. And, you know, will, will they be brave enough to play him uh, right from the start? I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Jedinak, you'll know from Crystal Palace. Um, they've got a problem in goal. They you know, don't, I don't think, you know, Matt Ryan is probably going to start. Don't think he's the best. So, you know, I think, I think this is an Australian side that will do well not to lose three games. And it, Frankly, it will surprise me if they don't. Yeah, I mean, it would be a, a major shock if they don't lose three games, really, wouldn't it? And imagine if they do like find a way to have an impact on that group. Be pretty remarkable story. I mean, you'd think they would play without fear, really, because they they really have nothing to lose. It's a horrible draw in terms of their chances of progressing, but it's a wonderful draw if you are just going for the experience, right? Well, yeah, and, and brand new coach as well, you know, Postecoglou. Uh, only really just been appointed. He's still trying to get himself into place. So I don't think they've got anything to lose. No one has high expectations, you know, especially back home. Um, and it's a brand new coach. They'll probably play in a fairly attacking, like what looks like an attacking setup, probably 4-3-3, morphing into 4-5-1. I think they'll give it a go. I just don't think they're good enough. No, absolutely. Hey, Ed, have you got any fun facts for us about any of the teams in Group B? Do you know what? I, I completely forgot to talk about any fun facts. Well, what, what's interesting, Holland, uh, the only side in World Cup history to lose in three finals of the three they've ever played. Man, that is not a, Brutal, fun, that is not a fun fact if you're Dutch, is it? Yeah, uh, not a fun fact. Australia, they picked a very odd location uh, for their base, which means the shortest journey they have to any game is over 800 miles. But that's like just up the road in Australia, isn't it? That's like that's they're true. just trying to yeah. settle in and feel at home. Very true, very true. Uh, Spain, what, what can we say? They've never won a tournament before 2008. Perennial failures. <laughs> and, and now they are not only double European champions and world champions, but uh, Champions League and Europa League holders too. They hold the lot. So they've ne- they never won a tournament until 2008, They've never lost a tournament since 2008. Quite, quite remarkable, isn't so, it? But if if Spain win this World Cup, I mean, it's a huge if, but that will be the greatest achievement in the history of football. To I mean, they're already possibly in with a shout of that anyway, having been the first side to win three major international tournaments on a bounce. But to win this one as well... I mean, that's just ridiculous. Certainly it? would be. Anyway, so that's Group B. Uh, group C, Paul, you, you've had a look at this and th- there's some interesting matchups here too. Yeah, absolutely. I think on paper, you might instantly look at Group C and, and say, well, this is one of the weakest groups in the draw. And, and in a way it is. I mean, it's definitely one of the weakest groups in the draw, but I definitely don't think it's the weakest group in the draw. Some of the best players in the world, potentially, in this group. Colombia, so we've got Colombia, we've got Ivory Coast, we've got Greece, and we've got Japan. 
it's a real, real proper actual shame uh, about Falcao. Because if, if Falcao was fit, then you'd be thinking that Colombia would just breeze this group, basically. But Colombia heavily reliant on Falcao. Uh, in, he scored a lot of goals in qualifying. And he got a horrible injury, and, and it's the biggest question mark in the squad. I don't think the final 23 has been announced, but Falcao has been training with the squad. And I'll be pretty shocked. I mean, he would have to have absolutely no chance of playing a part in order to not be picked. I think they'll take him whatever happens. And but of course, they've got Jackson Martinez, who's had an outstanding season with Porto. Uh, can can he re- can he replace the goals? We will come on to Jackson Martinez in just a minute. Uh, the coach Jose Peckerman, uh, Argentinian, might remember him. He managed the national side in Argentina in two thousand and six. Um, a hugely popular figure in Colombia because uh, he took them to the World Cup. He was offered uh, Colombian citizenship uh, after qualifying, which I thought was a, a, a nice touch. Big on the old possession football, lots of high pressing. Um, you mentioned Van Hal being one of the most tactically astute coaches uh, and a great strategist. Peckerman is a is a brilliant tactician. Like Peckerman is all about mixing up, playing different formations. Most of the coaches in this tournament, you could you can say this is the way they play, but you can't with Peckerman. They played a four four two. They played a four five one. They played a four two three one. Falcao is the key player, but Jackson Martinez, as you say, like a fantastic season in Porto and not to be written off. Like he, he's a very fine player. Also, doing my research, it's worth paying attention apparently to the wing backs, Pablo Armero and Camilo Zuniga. There we go. Uh, the biggest weakness is them not having Falcao that will will definitely be uh, kind of a hammer blow to them and a lack of pace at centre back it's likely that Mario Yepes will still play yeah who's uh, about 90 yeah <laughs> definitely going on 38 um, James Rodriguez the, the Monaco player a former Porto player very very exciting wide player I think and and people will may have seen a bit of Freddy Guaran just because he was linked with United a few times I mean I have to say I think I said on the pod earlier this season I didn't think he was good enough for United but he's a, he de- he's a decent box to box player and the kind that you'll need yeah and he probably maybe wouldn't be good enough for ideally United but he would probably currently improve our midfield as as see well see, my yeah. gran would improve our midfield see right all now. other midfielders at this tournament uh, other United links didn't we put a down payment on Falcao once so that brings us on to the next team in the group which is Greece so you think Greece right you close your eyes imagine Greece you'll be asleep before you open your eyes again, right? This is the, the reputation of the Greece. Uh, it's the first time in their history they've qualified for back-to-back World Cups, but their team spirit and cohesion make them greater than the sum of their parts. They're dangerous on set pieces and on the counter, um, but much will depend on whether uh, Kostas Mitroglou's confidence is in one piece following his really bizarre stint at Fulham. I mean, it's one of the worst... I mean, it's not quite as bad as Falcao being injured, but Mitroglou's transfer from Olympiakos to Fulham was absolutely disastrous for the Greek national side because they finally found an answer to the problem of their lack of goals. Like they scored 12 goals in qualifying, but they only conceded four. They didn't concede a single goal at home. Um, and they and then they, sort of having kind of snoozed their way through the group stages, they, they put in a really coherent attacking performance against Romania. And coached by Fernando Santos, who he's not Otto Rehagel, you know. Rehagel was defensive to an absolute fault but Santos isn't plays a 4-3-3 up front they'll have Mitroglu through the middle they'll have Georgia Samaros who never scores any goals but is pretty useful in possession doesn't have a club at the moment though does he oh has he left Celtic I think I believe he's left Celtic I didn't renew his uh, 
his contract. So he's he's in the shop window, Paul. Uh, United putting in the cheeky bid. <laughs> I suspect not. We don't need uh, a man who, whilst he has fine dribbling skills, has scored seven goals in 81 international appearances. That might not be exactly right, but it's something like that. He looks remarkably like... Uh, he looks remarkably like Jesus looking over Rio, don't you think? What he looks Christ like... Christ the Redeemer. He, he, he sticks his arms out. It's <laughs> almost uncanny. He looks like a direct cross between 1979 Freddie Mercury and uh, Fernando Morientes. You, you smash the two, smush the two of them together, you get... Uh, he's the most 70s-looking man in the world, Georges Samaras. On the other side of the 4-3-3, um, with Matroglu up front, you've got um, Salpingidis, who is much more direct. Um, he's their kind of outlet on the counter-attack. Um, they've got a problem in the centre. So the key players, essentially... Well, just briefly to touch on Santos, it's worth pointing out that uh, this is his last bit of his stint in charge of Greece he said he's leaving after the World Cup and he's done a phenomenal job with Greece like the, the fact that they qualified for both tournaments led them through the group stage at Euro 2012 and, and I think they do have an outside chance of getting through this group and if they do it'd be just an enormous achievement 10 million people in Greece he was voted the Super League manager of the decade in the 2000s in Greece even though he only won one trophy so obviously sort of pretty highly rated yeah popular popular man one one observation i have about greece the ugliest squad in the world cup oh. by some distance <laughs> I, I sleepy nick won't like me saying this but they are they are <laughs> ugly. i don't know I, I they've got a certain uh stone carved rock hewn quality um I, worth also a shout for their two center backs like costas minolas is a young center back with a lot of talent and uh socrates papastathopoulos well done Thank you very much. I've practiced that a lot. I can spell it as well. He plies his trade at Borussia Dortmund and is a fine centre-back. He is. He is, yeah. Although, um, after you've started thinking about Greece and fallen asleep and fallen on the keyboard, that's how you spell his name. <laughs> um, there's no uh, no United connection, but I would remember the name Costas Monolos. That's all I'm saying. I suspect we'll at least be linked with looking at him at some point. <laughs> at least be linked with looking at him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the extent of it. Very um, fun fact about Greece they have a truly appalling World Cup record they've only ever qualified twice before uh, they've only scored a goal in one of those games <laughs> so when their most famous game is when they got spanked by a coke laden Diego Maradona's Argentina <laughs> then you know something about so it they, they, this is also the first time they've ever been at a World Cup and not been drawn in the same group as Nigeria and Argentina and one of those weird quirks but they are playing a friendly against Nigeria tomorrow because obviously <laughs> they don't want to miss out it has seeing their old yeah. mates but they're not seeing Argentina this time classic stuff yeah. so uh, probably the the other team with a, with a shout for one of the best players in the World Cup that's in this group is the Cote d'Ivoire it's such a shame that the Cote d'Ivoire's golden generation has had to wait until its third World Cup to face anything other than a proper group of death. They've just had brutal draws when their team was perhaps at its peak. Uh, and it, it's a little bit late. Uh, this one's come a little bit late in the cycle of, of their really their greatest generation. Um, they're going to have to guard against complacency in this group because it must feel like a bit of a tonic for those carrying the scars of those groups of death. Uh, their coach, Sabri Lamouchi, a Frenchman, is his first job in man- uh, in management. Um, they qualified really strongly, didn't do very well at the Africa Cup of Nations, but he's a popular figure apparently in the Ivory Coast. Uh, and he's a 4-3-3 man through and through. Um, key players, I mean, you know, birthday cake gate aside, which has happened since we... Uh, 
last recorded a, a rant cast, so we have we haven't got to talk Great about stuff. it. But uh, Yaya Toure is, I mean, he's just had an incredible season. I do think it is completely. It's somewhat ridiculous to me that he didn't win player of the season. It is completely ridiculous that he wasn't in the top two in in the Premier League because he was either the best or the second best player, depending on what metrics you want to use as far as I'm concerned. He's just an absolutely phenomenally talented player. Yeah, but some question marks over his brother, Kolo Torre. He's been a, a bit ill. And is, is this going to affect his participation in the tournament? Well, I think... If it does, that's probably not the worst news for the Ivory Coast because out of all their sort of golden generation players, the one who looks the least likely to be able to put together any kind of proper performance is Colo. Um, who do you think they'll play up front? I mean, Drogba, obviously, Javinho, Kalou, Boney. There's, there's plenty of attacking talent. Yeah, I mean, they're going to play three of them, right? So you'd think it's going to be Kalou, Javinho and either Drogba or Boney. And I would, I mean, I don't know this for sure obviously but I would be surprised if they don't start Drogba because he's Drogba right I mean I think his age is one of the weaknesses of this side if this was four years ago I think they would have walked the group to be honest Um, they also lack a kind of genuine playmaker because Jovino is a bit you know hit and miss and he's he's pretty much a striker as well but he's been on form right this season I I don't watch a lot of Serie A but he scored a lot more goals than he did when he was playing in England He's had, he's had a good season with Roma, yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder whether they, they won't play Yaya in a more attacking role and then just kind of, you know, put Tiote and Zakora or Romeric around him and, and those guys will just kind of protect Yaya um, from flying cakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any United connections? Hey, listen, Yaya, we'll make you a face cake. Every year, without fail, you'll get a birthday cake with your own face on it. I, I did love how multiple clubs sent him a cake. <laughs> Awesome. Talking of which, like we picked out a fun fact about all these players. I know we've mentioned all these teams have got a fun fact mentioned about them. So Ivory Coast standard bearer and their best player is legitimately possibly going to leave the club he's at, who've just won the championship in the country they're in because nobody gave him a cake. That's that is the funnest fact of any of the fun facts we've got lined up for you. We're not going to top that. It's untoppable. Indeed. So Japan. Few United connections in this one. Well. Yeah. Well. One. You say. You say. You say a few. I was like, have I, have I missed something? Japan will be pleased with their draw as it offers a legitimate chance of progress beyond the group stages. Everything you think you know about Japan is probably just about correct. They play nice possession football, fine technical players, but they lack for physicality and they have defensive frailties. It might sound like a kind of football cliche 101, but it's absolutely the truth. Uh, coached by Alberto Zaccaroni, because apparently they just wanted to get like a proper European tactician as a coach. Very experienced, managed 13 clubs in Italy, won Serie A with Milan apparently absolutely loved in Japan uh, they're going to play a 4-2-3-1 they, they play 4-2-3-1 all the time, sadly for Shinji uh, he's probably not going to get to play at number 10 ironically, but he's going to play off the, off the left, but Ed, as you will attest playing off the left in a 4-2-3-1 is not the same as playing off the left of a 4-4-2. Ginev tells me otherwise so I, I have to <laughs> doubt myself. Funny thing is Honda, I, though he's a very good attacking midfielder, he's not a playmaker right? And, uh, you know, he went to Milan. Uh, he's had an all right second half of the season. Uh, I would I would be tempted to play Kagawa through the middle. They won't do that. Uh, definitely won't do that. 
Uh, but Kigawa will have no defensive responsibilities. He's going to get a free roll on that left-hand side. And, and we'll see where it takes them. They they weren't brilliant, were they, during qualifying? So do you expect to see much from them? I mean, the thing is, they they qualified comfortably, right? They weren't brilliant during qualifying. And, and the real problem has come as well since they've started playing friendlies against the bigger sides. Um I don't know, you'd have to say that this is a great group for them, right? I mean, it couldn't be much better. There's maybe two worse groups than this. And also, I feel like they stack up quite well against the style of play they're going to come up against. So one of the games I'm most looking forward to in the opening fixtures is Ivory Coast against Japan because it is such a massive clash of styles. You've got one team which has got this incredibly dominant physicality and sort of slightly lacks, not attacking prowess, because they've got oodles of attacking prowess, but like technical creative prowess. That isn't that isn't the strength of the Ivory Coast. Um, and Japan, it's like the exact opposite, where you've got all these like quick, small players. And and I, I think it's fascinating that they play Honda at number 10, because he also slows the play down, right? He's not he's not as fast as the rest of them. But he got a really good working relationship with Kagawa, apparently. Um, and we've seen at United, like Kagawa plays really well on the left, when Matas played at number ten, Kaga was done brilliantly on the left, and that that is a kind of that's a, a good match, isn't it? I, I think it's the formation rather than the personnel, but there's something in that too. Yeah, I, I thought you did very very well there, Paul. Not to churn out a load of cliches about African <laughs> and Japanese teams. <laughs> Very I mean, impressed, th- very impressed. Let's see if Shiro can match you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, United Connection, oh, beloved Shinji of my heart. Uh, it's. I, I hope he has a really good World Cup. It's like, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he does. Here's a question for you, Paul. Why did Japan pick a base in southern Japan when they've got two games in the north and one in the east, west? Uh, do you mean in southern Brazil? Yeah, so they're, they're travelling 1,000... 819 miles, 1,646 miles, and 929 miles to each of their games. I think that will... I know I'm being glib about it, but I think that makes a difference because it means they've got a three, three-and-a-half-hour flight back and uh, rather than a, an hour uh, and in a very tightly packed tournament. That that rest, uh, you know, three-and-a-half hours is half a day. That's, that's like a big difference. Of- all of their best players all play in Europe, so they're all used to flying long distances before they're internationals. Like, a three-and-a-half-hour flight to them is like, you know, it's like a bus ride to us. I, yeah, I it's not. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I do a lot of international travel, as you well know, and uh, I would say this is going to take something out of them. But, hey, we'll see. Odd fact about Japan. It's not a fact. It's an, It's the truth, though. Uh, they are almost certainly going to be the side at the World Cup with the coolest haircuts. They almost always are. I'm not sure that's a fact, Paul. I think you were cheating. <laughs> it's a fact. Like, have you seen the like the squad pictures of Japan? Just every single one of them, pretty much, has got some version of an awesome anime character manga haircut. It's it's very cool. I like it. They're our only hope for Mullet Watch as well. Like Mullet Watch was at its peak with the Eastern European sides of the mid two thousands, but it's really dipped off since then. But I think Japan are like the one standout hope that there might be a mullet somewhere in the World Cup. So tell us about Group D. Well, I don't think people will be watching this one much. Bit bit dull, isn't it? England's group or uh, Uruguay's group or Costa Rica's group or Italy's, depending on your perspective on this one. So Uruguay, Costa Rica. England and Italy, and let's let's take it in that order because uh, I'm not necessarily saying that's the order it will finish, but I, I think there's some more interest outside of England. Um, Uruguay, very very interesting side because they've got 
loads and loads of quality, but they really struggled in qualification. They ended up playing Jordan in a two-leg playoff in order to get to the World Cup, and that's how bad they were, given that there was no Brazil in qualification either. So effectively, they're the sixth best South American side, and there's only five countries in South America. So that's how bad they were in qualification, but they've got way more talent than that. I mean, uh, Suarez, everyone knows, of course. Cavani, everyone knows, of course. But, but you know, through the through the uh, back four, they've got some quality in Caceres and Godin, you'll, you'll remember from... Atletico Madrid, Pereira. Um, in central midfield is an interesting one because they'll probably play Rios and Ladero. Maybe R- Rodriguez might play wide. Um, they might play a 4-3-3. They might play a 4-4-2. They've mixed in between. Plenty of quality in attacking. They'll probably play on the break very, very well. They're a better side than they showed in qualification. And I think they're going to cause some trouble for Italy and England, and I mean, everyone will be looking at Suarez, of course, he's got this knee injury, will he be fit in time? I think they'll do anything to get him fit, and and as we've seen with Liverpool, you can surround a very, very high quality player with some average players and, and get a lot out of them, and if there's a man that can do it, it's the coach Oscar Tabarez, who's vastly experienced, He's he's had multiple internationals and and club jobs, uh, he's he's been there, done it all. He's 68 now, so um, yeah, hugely experienced. I think this is his last tournament, possibly his even his last job. Uh, I think they'll get quite a lot out of this squad. I think he's fashioned them into a good unit. I think they'll the players will rise to the occasion that they didn't do in qualification. They had some trouble in qualification, uh, especially away from home. Um, I think, uh, you know, almost in their own backyard. This is this is calling on the best tournament for Uruguay for some time. I mean, made the uh, made the semi-finals, didn't they, in two thousand and ten? But a very patchy record before that. Uh, and I think they'll do all right. I think they'll do all right. Yeah, they won the Copa in America in twenty eleven as well. It's weird their qualifying thing because they sort of, you know, they proved themselves the best side in South America, and then, as you say, ended up finishing the sixth best side in qualifying fifth best not including brazil yeah too too many good players not to do well i think and uh, i didn't mention walter gagano either uh, um yeah, plays in uh, palma i think he's a very very good player i'm kind of surprised he's not a, a, a better club than palma at the moment lots of quality there maybe a bit thin in the squad so we'll see see whether they get out the group i mean i suppose they're not favorites to get out of the group with England and Italy there, although I think they're going to give England a really tough game. And I suppose that brings me on to um, brings me on to England, which everyone will be watching. It's, I mean, I think we said when we we saw the initial squad a, a couple of weeks ago that it was brave and bold from Hodgson. Lots of young players in there. He's gone for players with pace. He says he's going to instigate an attacking policy. It looks like they're going to play a sort of four-two-three-one or four-three-three system, going away from the four-four-two. Didn't pick Andy Carroll, so not going to lump it. Although, um, I suppose uh, I suppose they do have in Ricky Lambert an option there if they really want to do it. But uh, it looks like as a squad they're set up to play football on the ground. They're going to have to do that because uh, I don't think they can be chasing the game around in Manaus, where their opening game against Italy comes up in the jungle going to be super hot and and super humid and that's the worst part isn't it not the heat necessarily and and so you know maybe the the mixture of young players 
a bolder attacking system for England and less expectations means that we'll come out of this tournament uh, with a surprise. Maybe. What do you think? I mean, I, I really hope so. I have to say there's two things that have combined to make me sort of be inclined to want England to do well. One of them, what well, three actually, one of them is the uh, departure of John Terry. So like that really helps. I don't love Stephen Gerrard, but I'd have him over John Terry in likability stakes every day of the week. Not that saying very much. Uh, the second thing is the band are not going. Hey. It's like, ah, oh, genuine relief to hear that that's the case. Anyone who, any corporation who ends up sponsoring the band to go over there, I am boycotting their products for life and campaigning for others to boycott their products for life too. Uh, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. It looks like FIFA have banned the band, so well done, FIFA. Um, and, of course, the third thing is the presence of Danny Welbeck. I mean, having watched a friendly the other day, everything looks like it could work on paper but it has not clicked yet and if they're going to have a good tournament they're going to have to click into the tournament and they're going to have to click into the tournament pretty quickly because if they get beaten comfortably by Italy the route out of the group looks very complicated because you wouldn't want to have to face Uruguay knowing that you have to attack all the way through being very vulnerable on the counter there is a lack of pace in the back four Um, Cahill I've been impressed by Cahill, I have to say. I, I, I didn't rate him particularly highly, but he has had a really good season and he's been good for England. Jagielka, I mean, you know, David Moyes rates him very highly and he's a decent player, but he's not Rio Ferdinand in his prime or Sol Campbell in his prime or no. Tony Adams or whatever. And, and there's a problem in central midfield too. I mean, the, here we're expecting a lot of Steven Gerrard, who's had a very good season, a kind of holding role for Liverpool. He'll play a similar role for England, but he is knocking on 35 now. So that's an issue. Will Henderson match up to the best uh, at a tournament level? He's had a good season, but mm, I'm not sure still. Wilshire could come in, but his fitness has been dodgy, of course. So they have a problem in central midfield. Hodgson does have options, though. He, he can play other players through the middle I mean Lampard's in the squad Oxlade Chamberlain in the, in the squad too uh, he could play three in central midfield and Rooney up top on his own he can shift Sturridge wide I mean he'll probably do that anyway Welbeck if he starts will play in a wide position I think tactically there's a good chance of Welbeck starting um, as for the other sort of United connection Smalling and Jones are, are effectively back up um, it looks like Jones will be fit there were some doubts about that um, so look I think there's a lot of positives. I feel more, not that I'm an England fan per se, but I feel more positive uh, about the vibe around this squad than at Euro 2012, where Hodgson had only just come in for the job and basically played a very negative, direct style, which was very ugly to look at. And I think England will play nicer football this time around. Can they adapt to the conditions, though? And um, I don't mean that in some kind of cliched way, because actually, you know, they play in Sao Paulo and Belo Horizonte, which, which won't be hot. Um, but they're a long way from home. Uh, they don't necessarily travel well, English players. Sorry, but they don't. Uh, and Manaus is in the middle of the jungle, and that's going to be super difficult. So they've got a, an awfully difficult start to the tournament. Um, they've done the prep right. I think uh, they're going to spend a week in Miami. Uh, by the time you listen to this, they'll have played Ecuador in a friendly in Miami, and then Honduras after that. And then they've got a week in Brazil before they 
they kick off. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting, the Rooney question. And, and we talked about this on the phone after the Peru game. There's a few things to note from the Peru. I mean, look, first of all, Peru were rubbish. But England's ball retention was superb. Like, Jordan Henderson, 90-plus percent pass completion, 100-odd passes, um, and, and nobody below 88% pass completion pass completion is not the be all and end all but it's a relevant stat for England in particular given how poorly they've used the ball in the past the one player with the notably worse pass completion than the rest of his colleagues was Wayne Rooney but they're not going to have to worry about it because he's just going to melt in Manaus and they're just going to have like a pool of Rooney uh, at the end of that and they're just going to have to put him in a bag and send him home to Colleen and he's going to have to sit in a freezer for a few days until he kind of forms back into the shape of Wayne Rooney yeah, you haven't seen red until you've seen Wayne Rooney's face in Manaus. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, and also look, I, I know this will be controversial on a United podcast, but I think he's he, he's potentially a weak link for England because he's going to play in that number ten role. And I think if they stuck him up front, asked him to hold the ball up and run the channels as a sort of classic number nine, they'd be getting more out of him than they will do. They're trying to play with him as their principal playmaker, and uh, I don't think he's a good number ten. Just don't. He's just not. There, there are probably about 10 number 10s better than Wayne Rooney at this World Cup. And and he is a weak link as a result. I think he will give the ball away and I don't think he's going to unlock defences. They're going to hope that he creates something and, and that he is able to interchange with Sturridge and, and Welbeck in a in a flexible fashion. And maybe that's what will give them some attacking penetration. I mean, I think I would probably play him in Manaus where the pace is going to be slower. And that, that would be it. That would be the last game I'd start him in. But, of course, he, I'm sure he'll start every game. Um, but I would play Sterling, Sturridge and Welbeck up front. Yeah. Uh, so so one of the questions around possession, I mean, you talked about England keeping possession. And I think, actually, in the group stages, it's not going to be that much harder for them, right? So uh, then um, maybe Uruguay will press a bit, but actually their, their opposition won't, right? So Italy are not a hard-pressing side and Costa Rica will sit back. Uh, and so I think they're lucky with the draw in that respect because I think if they played a side that pressed high, they'd struggle with possession, uh, and they don't. And so they may have a decent amount of the ball. And you'd expect Italy's superior quality in central midfield to tell in that first game. And and I'm sure that England will be playing on the break. I mean, they're going to set up like that, right? They're going to use some pace um, and and try and catch Italy in the break. And it, it might work. You know, this is I don't think an Italy squad that's anywhere near as good as the one. In 2006, say, you know, they've they've still got PLO. Yes, he's still going to run the show. Thiago Motta's a good player. Uh, Daniel De Rossi will anchor the, the midfield. And Verratti, the, the PSG player, who's, who's really had a good season, will be in there too. So, you know, they've got some quality in central midfield. There's a lot of questions about their forwards. Balotelli looks like he's been kicked out of Milan. Will he start? Will they start with Immobile instead, who's coming to the, the side? Uh, they've lost Ricardo Montalivo, which is a big blow for them, I think, because he's very high quality on the ball. So there's still some questions about this Italy side. Buffon is ageing. Cellini and Bonucci, probably starting the central defence, are slow. I think it's fair to say. You know, there's, they're hard, but slow. So they could be affected by pace. So plenty of question marks over this Italy side. Um, tactically... I think Prandelli will set them up uh, to keep the ball. They'll try and use the pace of Immobile and Balotelli when they can. Um, I think they they will work in a slightly more attacking fashion than you know the cliched uh, Italian five three two. 
and uh, and we'll see some good stuff from them but I don't think it's a classic Italy side no of course we would have said that and I think we probably did say that in the preview of for the European Championships and and they really impressed in that tournament didn't they Pirlo put on masterclass after masterclass Balotelli was really impressive in that tournament and they just really came together for him and to you know World Cup cliche 101 right Italy are a tournament side um but they really are like when it when it's come together for Italy generally speaking people weren't expecting it to come together nobody had Italy as favorites for the 1982 World Cup or the 2006 World Cup I think you're right. I think they're they're short, but that's what people tend to think about Italy. So I wouldn't it it wouldn't be a complete shock if they pulled off a a complete shock. If you know what I'm saying. Look, they've got some quality. They do have some quality. Of course, um, talking of United connections, Giuseppe Rossi not made it to the, uh, the tournament, yeah. and this is sad, isn't it? Because he was desperately trying to overcome a second major knee injury of his career. Only came back in April, didn't play many minutes after that, and and uh, had a friendly against Ireland the other night. wasn't very good and and has been dropped. It's a real shame for him. But they've got other talent. I mean, Mobile had a very very the Torino forward had a very good season. Balotelli is hot and cold. He's always been hot and cold. And Alessio Cecchi, uh, the other Torino forward, I think is a, a very good player too. But these are not guys who playing at the the very highest level of European football. They're not, but as you say, Balotelli's hot and cold, but when he's hot, he's hot, right? And and he was extremely hot the last time he played tournament football for Italy, so... Yeah. The, the other question for me is, is in central midfield, are they going to yeah. last the pace? I mean, Daniel De Rossi in his, in his 30s now, and uh, Pirlo, 35. That's a big question for me. You know, De Rossi's having to provide a lot of energy there. So I think the two... Paris-based players Verratti uh, and Mossa will have a big part to play in that midfield. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when England play Italy, it's going to be really interesting to see whether Hodgson assigns either Welbeck or Rooney or both in a rotating basis to Pirlo. I think he probably should, shouldn't he? Because when we when when we played them at Euro twenty twelve, Pirlo just had the the freedom of the park, um, and it was it was disastrous uh, for England. It was tactically naive and. I, I can't see that happening again. So the the team that I don't know anything at all about in this group to to go back to the Alan Shearer routine is Costa Rica. What what can you tell me about them? Well, Paolo Wanchape is uh, retired, unfortunately. So <laughs> I love that kid. What a player! Well, there's United connection for you as well. Remember that goal he scored for Derby all those years ago <laughs> where he danced through the entire United side to score. Um, interesting. I mean, uh, in, in Jorge Pinto, they've got a, a man who's vastly experienced, the coach. He's Colombian, um, and he took the job partway through the qualification process. This is his 18th. That's it, 1-8 coaching job. Uh, so he's massively experienced, and then nobody's favourite. None of their players play at top clubs through Europe. Uh, probably the guys who are most familiar to you are ex-Fulham forward Brian Ruiz, now at PSV. Joel Campbell, the Arsenal player, scored a blinding goal for Olympiacos, who has spent the season on loan against United, so you'll remember him. Plenty of talent. He's, he's a guy lots and lots of people are talking about. So can they get the ball to him? Uh, the rest of it is a problem, right? So they've they've switched between 4-4-2 and 
or 541-451 through the qualification process. Uh, they played a lot of sides that you'd expect are, are better than them. Um, they, they they will be the worst team in the group by some distance, uh, and they will try and play on the counter-attack. And, and in Ruiz, they've got a player who's got plenty of talent on the ball, and in Campbell, they've got a guy with bags and bags of pace. So um, they might be set up well to do that. Uh, Brian Oviedo's missing, broke broke his leg um at the back uh there's there's um Juno Diaz plays for Mainz had a very good season in Germany Oscar Duarte uh some people who follow Belgian football might know him plays for Club Bruges uh and a couple of randoms and I you know I think I say that it sounds like I don't know much about them but I don't know that much about them uh but having uh, done some research on YouTube and read lots of profiles of all their players and and had a look at some of their taxes through all their, their qualification process. Uh, this is it will be a major shock if they pull anything off from any of these games. Uh, this is not a super strong Costa Rica squad, uh, but they haven't made many World Cups, right? Uh, so this is a major outing for them. Absolutely. Um, all right. So I'm going to put you on the spot and say who do you think is going to qualify from this group? Because I I just can't pick it. I just I really, really want England to do well in this tournament. I can't quite explain why, apart from the three reasons I gave earlier, but I just would love it. But it it, it seems like I mean, you said that Uruguay aren't favourites to qualify, but I'm not sure why Uruguay and Italy are not the two standout favourites to qualify from this group. Well, they're not because there's there, there are holes in that Uruguay squad. All right, and uh, and there are areas where they're filling in players who are not as good as their top players. Uh, so in Cavani and Suarez, uh, outstanding striking options. Of course, Diego Forlan is in the squad. Yeah, amazingly, player of the tournament last time out. Remember, and uh, and he's playing in Japan now, coming yep. right to the end of his career, his last tournament for sure. Perhaps even full retirement after this. It is. He's he said he's retiring after this tournament. Yeah. So. There you go. So. Um, yeah, he's going to be a respected option from the bench, right? You know, he's 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 definitely got quality. Technical player, probably come on in a deeper area than than in his youth if he comes off the bench. And and so there's definite quality there. But through midfield, do you think England have got a chance? And uh, you know, if if the narrative plays out like this, Italy beat England in the first game, and I think England would do well to get a draw. Uh, I think they'd be very happy with a draw out of that game. And especially given the location and all of that start the tournament. So if Italy beat England and England do not beat Uruguay, then I think England are heading home. And uh, and it'll come down, possibly it'll come down to goal difference then. It wouldn't surprise me if Uruguay got a draw against Italy. Um, with it not being their first game, I think there's an advantage. Uh, definitely they'll be up and running, having played Costa Rica first. Um, so I don't think the draw has panned out well for England. They'd have much preferred a game against Costa Rica in the south in Rio or in uh, Sao Paulo or something like that but it's not happened so um, I think I think England are marginal marginal I'm going to say I'm going to call it Italy England Uruguay Costa Rica just uh, so it's like a group of sort of serious quite serious injury not life-threatening, but like it hurts. It's not a group of death because none of the teams are quite that good. But it is a group where one very good team or at least pretty good team is going to be going home. Yeah. And interesting fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's 48 years of hurt. That's the interesting fact. <laughs> oh, so long. And, and do you know what the worst thing about that is, is? Is the song said 30 years of hurt. So that's how old we are, Paul. 
That's how old we are. <laughs> Last time England played in Brazil, 1950 World Cup, beat Chile, but lost to Spain and the USA. I don't think that will happen this time round, uh, mainly because we won't play all of those sides. So they are all at the tournament, of course. Um, last time Uruguay won the World Cup was in Brazil. Omens. Omens, maybe. Of course. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Italy, 1950 and all that. Their travel arrangements, they will be flying over a thousand get- miles to each game. Uh, England will be doing that me- mega trip up to Manaus first, but then uh, Belo Horizonte and Sao Paulo for the two other games. Nice, easy trips from Rio once they got through the um, the traffic around Rio. And if Rooney, and this is a big if, has avoided the favela prostitutes. Oh, so it's a big harsh. if, Paul. It's a big if. So, so harsh. Fun, funnily enough, here's another fun fact. Um, I've stayed in the hotel that is next to the Royal Tulip. I can I couldn't afford to stay at the Royal Tulip. A bit expensive, uh, but right next door, so I know exactly where it is. Just a, along from Le Bon Beach, so just outside Rio, there is a massive favela. It goes up the hillside. Um, but aside from that, you know, they've got a very nice training camp. Just in the shadow of Sugarloaf Mountain, so the other side of Rio. So they actually have got quite a long trek to go training every day, um, for those of you that know Rio, and they will enjoy some magnificent sights while they're doing it. Yeah, I mean, while you talk about Rio, the, the one thing that we've not done on this podcast, which given, you know, we, we talk about stuff like this quite often, uh, I think it's probably worth mentioning. The reason that I'm not talking about the politics of this World Cup is because I just haven't educated myself about it yet. I feel like maybe I should. And and if I'm really honest, I feel like one of the reasons I'm avoiding educating myself about the politics of the World Cup is because I don't want to not enjoy the World Cup. Um, and that is not not a great thing to admit, if you know what I mean. And and I f- mm. feel like I can't I can't really live with well, with that. Fine, fine, look, there are politics because Brazil is a, is a country of extremes, extremes of wealth and poverty. Uh, there are a very small middle class. Actually, if anyone who's listening who's been to Rio, it feels like, I wouldn't say European city, but it feels like a wealthy city, actually, outside of the favelas. It's, uh, it's you know, there, there's clearly money there. There's a lot of middle class people, but, but a lot of the country is not rich at all. And, and they've spent an awful lot of money uh, doing up stadiums a number of them will be white elephants afterwards and there's a lot of controversy so slum clearance police brutality uh, the money spent corruption in in terms of how those contracts are awarded so it is controversial even more controversial uh, the mayor of rio said this week that rio beats london in every scenario although you know actually i think much of this is fair uh, <laughs> he said in 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 terms of the sites and uh, uh, the people and what else do you say? The economy and uh, anyway, um, uh, fair enough. Ipanema Beach, Copacabana Beach, Leblon Beach, which is a very pretty one, by the way. Uh, Sugarloaf Mountain, uh, Christ the Redeemer, the the mega statue of Christ over um, the, the the scenery, the lagoon in the middle of town. Stunning city. So uh, he's probably right. Is it really bad if you say that you think that Christ the Redeemer looks like Jimmy Hill? He does a bit. He does. It it. Is, He's got the chin think, for it. Uh, Mixed between yeah. Georgia Samaras and Jimmy Hill. <laughs> All right. Uh, so 
politics aside, onto Group E. Uh, Group E, the one everyone wanted. Somehow, Switzerland are a seeded team at this World Cup, man. Uh, everyone wanted, that was the, the, the seeded team that everyone wanted to be in the same group as. France, who, who like England, were in pot three of the draw, um, will be very, very glad that they ended up in this group because uh, it's a lot easier than England's group. Switzerland are not the snooze fest that everyone remembers them as. Um, in in qualifying, uh, they there were quite a few quite dull games, but they did draw four all with Iceland, which I think that that those of us who watched Switzerland in like the World Cup in two thousand and six probably could not conceive that they would ever in the history of time score four goals in one match. That, that's like the World Cup of the financial crisis. You've got <laughs> the solid Swiss bankers never going to melt down ever versus Iceland fully leveraged up to the eyeballs, went into total meltdown. Yeah, brilliant. absolutely. Uh, so Otmar Hitzfeld, uh, a serial winner in German football, won uh, the Bundesliga twice with Bayern Munich, twice with Dortmund, won the Champions League once with each of them. And he's uh, he's yet another 4-2-3-1 chap. Um, and, and the three uh, will feature Zerdan Chakiri, who, you know, a player that is perennially linked with a move to one of the... the the big clubs then moved to Bayern Munich, um, where he's sort of a fringe figure, really, isn't he? Slightly. Very, it's, very fringe figure. Yeah. yeah. So we think he's probably going to move in the summer. Um, other key players include uh, the Juventus right back, Stefan Lichsteiner, very fine player. Yeah, uh, very fine player. Um, fans of Football Manager will all appreciate Stefan Lichsteiner. There's never enough good fullbacks in uh, Football Manager, and he's one. Uh, and Gokken Inler, who I've got an extreme affection for, for no other reason than. Uh, in about the year 2020, I, I had had him at United for 10 years. And he never played, but I never heard a peep out of him. He was ne- he never complained once. So uh, no doubt, given football managers' fierce levels of accuracy, uh, Gokken Inler is, is an easygoing fella. Got a heck of a shot on him as well, hasn't he? Uh, he certainly has, yeah. He's, he's a very good player. I mean, others to look out for, Kasami, the Fulham player. No, he's you know, likely to get a game or two in midfield. Probably won't start. Uh, Ricardo Rodriguez, the left back, I think he's a very good left back. Uh, an option for United if if the move for Luke Shaw doesn't work out. I think because he's at Wolfsburg. Fabian Schaar, outstanding defender. Um, I wonder whether he'll move on to bigger and better things from Basel this this summer, especially especially given that that Basel side is kind of breaking up at the moment. Um, Granit Xhaka. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach player, ex-Basel player, very, very good midfielder. You know, they're they're a, they're seeded because they're a good side and they've got some good players. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but they've also got Philippe Senderos and he's probably going to play. Yeah, and Juru. So you know, all those great players we talked about then, Senderos and Juru. Yeah, so uh, there's a problem there. Uh, United Connection, I'm sure we will be linked to people in the Swiss side during the World Cup, I've no doubt about that. But also, Otmar Hitzfeld may have won a couple of Champions League finals, but there was one he didn't win now, wasn't there? There certainly was. There certainly was. All right, my favourite fact that I could find about Switzerland's football team. Uh, in 2006, they became the first side ever to be knocked out uh, without conceding a goal during the course of play. They lost on penalties to the Ukraine in one of the worst games of football that's ever happened. Yeah, it, I remember that one. Oh, yeah. it's, it's like It's funny because it, when you're watching it, you're thinking, it's like this World Cup, right? You watch all the games. But I, I just remember being like... 
asking myself existential questions about the purpose of like what am I doing with my time watching that game I'm pretty sure I didn't see the penalty shootout because I gave up on it because it was so dull well, it's one of those games where you hope the penalty shootout is only three three kicks each right <laughs> let's just cut it short let's be merciful <laughs> let's definitely skip extra time but they didn't um but yeah that is not switzerland it, much like greece are not the greece that you remember except that switzerland are a step up in quality of, from greece uh, ecuador also in this group uh tony v's ecuador faced tragedy in qualifying chucho benitez died at just 27 years old the thing about that is of course it was a terrible personal tragedy for all the people that know him and we've all seen what a profound effect it's had on Valencia but it also had like a massive massive footballing effect on Ecuador because their team was kind of built around Benitez not because he was such a phenomenal player because he was a he was a fine player but not of the very very highest quality but he just served a, a particular function so they'd always play a 4-4-2 and he would be the player who would like drop deep and break forward and they haven't got a natural uh, a natural replacement for him so their coach Ronaldo Rueda another Colombian I'm pretty sure that Colombia is the most represented country uh, in uh, in management terms um, he previously guided Honduras to the 2010 World Cup he's likely to stick with a 4-4-2 we'll see Tony V on one flank playing the Tony V way Jefferson Montero plays on the other side but he he's much more likely to kind of cut inside it's almost like playing Nani on one side and Tony V on the other and Jefferson Montero is kind of hit and miss in in a similar way to Nani so so I think that'll be quite familiar to to United fans and and the thing about the United connection is is the Valencia that plays for Ecuador, he tends to be that best version of Valencia. You know, we see it from time to time at United and it's always like electrifying when you do see Valencia playing well, but he really does tend to excel for his national team. Yeah, and, and has uh, in the past played sort of centrally, but uh, I agree with you. I think he'll end up playing uh, on the right side of a four-four-two in this Ecuador side. So uh, England will get to see them mm. very shortly. I mean, I have to say they were distinctly unimpressive in their friendly against Mexico and I think they'll do well to get out of the group because I think the two teams most likely to get out of the group are Switzerland and France. Uh, before we move on to France, odd fact about Ecuador, guinea pigs are a delicacy in Ecuador. This is... Mm, as they are in Peru and Bolivia. It's just unacceptable. It, they're quite tasty, actually. <laughs> Honestly. Look, I mean, you know, obviously I'm a radical vegetarian anyway, but seeing a little cute little tiny little guinea pig no no they're not the same they're actually quite big so they're they're more like the size of a cat okay well and and you you kind of you know after you've uh, kind of skinned them and gutted them you stick a uh, you stick a skewer up there and you kind of roast them like spit That's roast disgusting. style <laughs> or rotisserie style just... yeah pretty pretty good it tastes like the kind of um dark meat from a chicken not exactly the same, but a bit like all well, rabbit, something like that. Like that. Rabbit was exactly the comparison that I saw. But don't eat guinea pigs, don't eat rabbits, don't eat chickens. That's my view anyway. Um, so, uh, talking of eating chickens, France. Expectations are moderate around Le Bleu, given their spectacular combustion at the last World Cup. It is very unlikely that we're going to see anything as awesome as the uh, France players refusing to get off a bus for hours on end. Well, no, Nasri's not in the squad, so... <laughs> 
Uh, squad Harmony has resumed. Patrice is, though, and he was like ringleader number one and all that. However, there is enormous quality in the French squad, and under Deschamps, they made a creditable attempt at qualification from the group that included Spain. Uh, they didn't manage it and had to face a playoff. They went 2 0 down to the Ukraine in Kiev, and then just a phenomenal, phenomenal performance when everyone had written them off. Probably the best France have played since the 2006 World Cup when they. They beat Ukraine 3-0 in Paris. And the thing about France is, if you look down that that side, there is bags and bags of quality. So Paul Pogba and Blaise Matuidi, that is one of the best central midfield twos anywhere in the tournament. Benzema's easily one of the best centre forwards in the tournament. Ribéry's one of the best wingers. You've got Sanyol. Griezmann possibly on the other Absolutely. side. He's, he's yeah. like, I would say he's like a slight step down in quality, but he's a fine player. Evra, I mean, you know, we've all seen Patrice struggle a bit this season. Well, I think that's their weakness, right? So, yeah. not, I mean, they probably play Varane and Koscielny or maybe Mangala, who's, but he's only really recently come into the, the reckoning. But in Evra and Debushi, the fullbacks, they've got some problems defensively. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Didier Deschamps, the water carrier of legend, uh, replaced miso- definitely publicly misogynistic and possibly privately racist coach Laurent Blanc. After... It wasn't that private about it, was it? <laughs> um, it was at a meeting that he didn't know was being recorded. Well, I'm not saying that makes it okay. I just mean that means he keeps his views to him. He's, he's aware that he can't do that in public. But misogyny, that's completely fine in public, uh, according to former Manchester United legend Laurent Blanc. Uh, well, it is in France, isn't it? I mean, it's a country of misogynists. They invented misogyny. Uh, and uh, just, clearly, just wild generalisations here. Sadly, also a country of racists. I mean, one of the reasons it would be lovely to see France do well is the national football side has often stood in opposition to the more right-wing element in France. I mean, 98 was an absolute victory for the multicultural French identity um, and success in this World Cup would be yet another. And, and that's really seriously under threat. I mean, you know, we think we have it bad here with UKIP, but the National Front got huge, huge electoral support. I mean, you know, no turnout always wins, right, in European elections, but huge relatively to what would be any kind of level of comfort uh, so yeah it'd be very from a political perspective it's always nice to see multicultural France do well and and it's very much that kind of squad makeup as well I mean so weaknesses I, I talked about the fullbacks I also think squad depth's a weakness here so yeah I know, I know they've got some real quality but you go outside of the 11 you sort of looked at there and and you're going down into some you know lower quality players so Payet and Grenier and Kabai and Valbuena and Giroud Giroud's their backup option is he? He is but the the thing is you you say that that's a lack of quality and I I, I mean it it is a lack of top flight quality but what Deschamps has done like in not picking Nasri is he's picked players that will play as a team because like Giroud is not a bad player he's just a player that sometimes plays badly I have to say Benzema is also a player who sometimes plays badly and I really feel like if they're really going to progress they're going to need Benzema firing on all cylinders I have to say I was disappointed that Marseille's Rod Fanny didn't make it <laughs> of course you were Ed um, Deschamps a 4-2-3 one man uh, Pogba and Matuidi behind probably Ribéry, Griezmann and Caballé, uh, Benzema up front. Um, sounds good. Like, I, I think it works. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, about the French prospects. The, the odd fact, 
that you have to mention about France is they didn't qualify for the World Cup in 1994. Then they won the World Cup in 1998. Then they went home in 2002 without scoring a goal. Then they got to the final, were pretty unlucky and like Zidane's implosion away from winning the World Cup in 2006. Then you had the ridiculous disaster of 2010. So really, they're probably going to win this World Cup or at least uh, go on a deep run if the if the sequence is to continue. Yeah, well, they got lucky with the draw. So I, I think they'll make it out of the group easily. Uh, and then we'll see where they go from there. I mean, they, you're right. They've got loads of quality. I, I think they may well fall down in those wide positions and they may well suffer for lack of squad depth. We'll see. But I don't think we're going to get the fireworks like uh, we did in South Africa four years ago. I think you're right about that too. Uh, so the 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 best bit about their draw is that Honduras are in the same group as them. Uh, now, this this is a team that I do not know a lot about. So this is all... And they are abysmal. Yeah, this is stuff I've, this is all stuff I've researched. So they, they qualified behind Costa Rica, but ahead of Mexico. But I think... I think Mexico are a considerably better team than Honduras. It's massive for them to be at the World Cup, um, especially as they qualified without needing a playoff. They are distinctly lacking in star power and are going to require massive overachievement to get out of the groups. Um, another Colombian, Luis Fernando Suarez, is their coach. Four four two. It's uncanny, this, isn't it? It is. It's weird, isn't it? It's like Colombians just get the job in all the Central American countries. Uh, he managed Ecuador in 2006 uh, when they got through the group's stages. Um, apparently, his reputation in Honduras is that he's very well liked by the public, but he lets the players get away with a bit much. Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that would be a bad thing, really. You might as well make them happy, given they're not that likely to do too well. Palacios is still a key player for them, in spite of the fact that... He, which one? Win- Jerry wins. Wilson? They've got another brother, haven't they? They've got about 15 Palacios I, I, brothers. <laughs> I do mean Wilson. Uh, is Wilson, Johnny and Jerry. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Is Johnny in the squad? Uh, I think Jerry is, but I'm not sure if Johnny's made it. But he might. He may well have done. Yeah, even though Palacios hasn't played a league game in 100 years or whatever it is, he's still a key player for Honduras. And the front two of Jerry Begston and the well-named Carlo Costley scored a lot of goals in qualifying. So, you know, that's what got them there. There is no United connection, but there are hell of Wigan Athletic collections. Basically, everyone in Honduras has played for Wigan Athletic at some point. Uncanny, isn't it? it- or dodgy pick the one you want that's going to double up as my odd fact because i got nothing uh, their nickname is bicolor meaning two colors which is because their flag has two colors that's not that odd creative they have a big h on their shirt that's a bit odd but also sort of cool yeah talking about kits uh, as a as a little yeah. digression before we get into the final couple okay. of squads fifa have demanded that uh, everyone has these monotone kits because uh Apparently, HD cameras don't like two colours in a kit. So some some teams have refused to do this. So Brazil will be wearing uh, uh, Croatia, definitely, yeah, with the checkers. Uh, but most have gone with this kind of monotone kit. So Honduras, all white. And uh, England will be in all white. Germany will be in all white. Uh, I think Italy have got away with some blue shorts. Don't know how they managed to do that. I think France will be in all blue. Won't they? Spain will be in all red. Um, who who else? Most of Argentina have a very very pale blue. It's almost all white. 
Uh, even though they have some stripes, so it's I think it's a little disappointing. Yeah. So at Jim Door ask what our favourite kits were, and I've got extremely strong feelings on this subject. Like monotone, maybe the order of the day, but Ghana, the Ghana Puma kit with the Puma kits are all like incredibly tightly fitting, and they they sort of look a bit odd in some cases. But the Ghana one is super stylish with this lovely brightly coloured African print around the collar and just a little patch of it on the sleeves that, that's very nice. And I really like the ridiculous. USA away kit have you seen it the red white and blue I have yes it's one of those garish ones you get now and again but yeah but it's sort of it's garish but it's oddly understated because it is just bands of colour like I mean if you're comparing it to their away kit in 94 which was stars and stripes you know no this one looks like a cocktail it does that's exactly what it looks like yeah but but not in that horrendous Barcelona tequila sunrise style Uh, so what's your what's your favourite of the kits I think I like the classy ones, to be honest. I like the Germany kit. I think that's nice, just with the kind of band across, white with the with the band. Not not a classic Germany kit at all. Um, I think Spain's red will look very nice, even though it's not a classic Spain kit. England will, are going to look pretty good in white, if they play in white. I actually presume they will. And um, yeah, so, I mean... Mexico, uh, they went a bit rogue, didn't they? Because they've got the kind, of, they've got some swirly shit going on there, which is interesting. Yeah, it's a bit mental. It's, it's there is a lot going on in that, in that Mexico kit. Portugal, you know, I we had this whole thing about the kits have to look good on HD TV. I think you're going to want a high refresh rate on your TV for Portugal. Otherwise, you're going <laughs> to likely it's going to cause some epilepsy problems. <laughs> that is some stripy business. I really, really, I mean, obviously Brazil's home kits are almost always great, but this one is particularly great. It looks at it kind of in shape. It's a bit like our away kit last season, that sort of slightly dentist assistant, dental hygienist look to it around the collar, but the, it just works spot on and and i definitely have a soft spot for the honduras kit with a big h on the on the chest yeah hopefully there's no helicopters in distress <laughs> while they're playing absolutely could could be a problem wilson palacios is gonna get a helicopter landing on him he'd, he'd take it he's hard <laughs> he is all right ed tell us about the next group well group f well this is interesting because it's there's there's a clear favorite argentina uh, and then three sides that it's hard to pick between so argentina bosnia and herzegovina let's not forget them uh, iran and nigeria five team group outrageous <laughs> Outrageous. Yeah, it's like when, when the USA had to play Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, cheating, just cheating it was. Anyway, Argentina, so Sabella has got a very, very good side this time out. I mean, it, it's been a long time since Argentina had a really good team. And I think the amount of attacking talent that Argentina have at their disposal now, this has got to be the opportunity when they, they go far in the tournament. Messi, Lavezzi, Higuain, Aguero, they left Carlos Tevez out. Oh, Poor old kettle juggler didn't get a game. I mean, although to be fair, he's not played for them in quite a while now. Um, was brought back into the Copa America side, but only really from public pressure. Uh, the, the question really is, can they build a team around Messi? He will not be playing in the false nine position that he does for Barcelona. They will not be playing. They're not revolving their team around Messi, which is controversial, but they're trying to make more of a team ethic. So it's likely Messi and Guero will be a bit deeper and Higuain will lead the line. It's kind of a 4-3-3, kind of, but not not in the same way that you might play in Europe. Um, and in Mascherano, Gago and Di Maria, they've got an excellent basis for a, a, a solid central midfield there. They won't play with any width. 
Really, they're going to be very, very tight in midfield. I think they will be difficult to beat. Sounds like a cliche, but I think that's true. And I think they'll rely on some real high quality up front to win games for them. They could go a long way. Are, are they going to Are they going to get it to knit together? Because they haven't always, but they were pretty good in qualifying. They, they topped the South American qualification. No Brazil there, of course. Um, a weak link, I think Romero, the Monaco goalkeeper. I have to say, whenever I've seen him, I've not been massively impressed I think he's prone to a mistake I think he he doesn't focus and and focusing the keeper is is, uh, is really important as we know uh, that could be a problem but Sabella's been there forever I mean he's he was Passarella's assistant for years and years and years he's got a very tight-knit community part of the reason why Tevez wasn't in there um, I think he has a very good team uh, and I think that's going to take them some distance. What are your thoughts? Can they get the best out of Messi? I mean, I really hope so, because this World Cup is going to be defined by Argentina if they do well, isn't it? Because the idea of Messi winning the World Cup in Brazil, I mean, there are a few brilliant narratives that could potentially happen in terms of winners. One would be Spain winning for the incredible feat that would be. The other would be for Brazil to win uh, on home soil. I mean, that would be spectacular, obviously. And the third one is definitely that Argentina, that Messi wins the World Cup in Brazil. The fierce rivalry between the two countries. It looks to me like this is, uh, as you say, like the keeper might be a weak spot, but but generally speaking, this squad's got a bit of everything, right? There's not too much lacking. And they're not mar- managed by Maradona this time. Uh, they've got a proper coach. They qualified really strongly. The draw is not unfavourable so long as they win the group. But we could. I mean, I say it's not unfavourable. It's an alright group. But the, the, the next set of games is going to be potentially... Have I got my maths wrong? No, I've got my maths wrong. Ignore me. I was thinking they were going to play uh, someone from Group G, but they're not, are they? They're playing. They're playing someone from uh, from Group E, which means that maybe they could be playing against, say, Switzerland in the second round, um, if everything goes as we think it will. And that's uh, that's pretty favourable, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, the one thought I have about them is they lack pace at the back. So, in, and Garay and Fernandez, Fernandez, the Napoli centre back, very, very good player. I think, I think he's, uh, you know, I think he'll complement Garay well, but there's no pace there. And then Zabaleta and probably Rojo uh, as their two fullbacks, so they they switch around a bit. So there's um, there's some questions there. Can they get best out of their squad players? So uh, a couple of years ago, everyone thought Evan Benega was on the on the cusp of joining one of the bigger sides. His career has gone south. He had a lot of personal problems. He's gone back to Argentina. He's back with Newell's now. Um, so didn't make it big in Europe. And uh, can they get the best out of Di Maria? He probably won't play in a kind of wide role. He'd probably play a lot more central, kind of as he did in some games for Real Madrid last season. Mascherano will almost certainly play midfield, not at the back like he does for Barcelona. So I think there's a lot of questions around the non-first eleven for Argentina. Can they find the right blend? Uh, and there's some, you know, there's more question marks about that than I think there are for some of the other top teams. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, of the rest, and, and this is going to be really tight for second place. I, mean, I have to say, I don't think I can call it Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, managed by Safet Sucic, who you may remember from. The 80s and 90s, a very, very fine midfielder for Paris Saint-Germain, amongst others, was actually voted the PSG's greatest import of all time a few years back. 
I think they might have a few better pre, now. Yeah, pre-Zlatan. Yeah, that's right. Question from Twitter. Will Zlatan win player of the tournament? He already has. <laughs> yes. Um, they've got some really good players, right? So Edin Dzeko, everyone will know, will lead their line. Miralem Pjanic. Um, a lot of people are very excited about thoughts of him potentially joining United. He's going to add a lot of creativity. I think their problem is that they've played this kind of diamond in midfield through qualification. And, and in some of the friendlies, they've kind of been found out by that. So I wonder whether they have a plan B or not. They, they play this very narrow formation, packed it with a lot of creative players, uh, of which they have lots through the squad, uh, and and managed to, uh, to score enough goals that way. World Cup might need a plan B. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a big weakness for them. Very thin squad. Outside the first 11, it really does drop off. And, and in fact, I think the coach, uh, Suchic, has, has admitted that, um, that he, you know he's pretty sure of what his first like, 13, 14 players are after that bit of a problem. But they've got a good spine. A very good spine through the team. I, I don't think they're going to be easy to beat by any means. Uh, I think they'll set up in a way that is probably looks like a four-four-two, or probably a, they can morph that into a four-two-three-one. So, as I said, they've got a lot of kind of creative players who will be able to play in different positions. So, Jeka will lead the line, whatever. Ibisevic and Misimovic uh, will sort of play around him. So will Pjanic, and I think they'll do all right. I can't call how this is going to go though, because um, I think uh, it, this is going to be a very tight group with with uh, Nigeria and Iran also in there. All right. So earlier on, I said that I thought Cameroon might be the weakest of the uh, African sides. How do Nigeria stack up? You can't call them weak. They've got Shola Amiobi. <laughs> so, He's left Newcastle. And Victor Moses. Shola Amiobi has left Newcastle United. I'm I'm really concerned that he's not going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's the first time I've ever heard you say Shola Amiobi without a Newcastle accent either. Shola Amiobi. <laughs> uh, Victor Moses, who had a pretty poor season, he will play. Odin Wingy fell out with the coach. Stefan Kishi looks like he's back in favour. actually played in a friendly the other night. So uh, he's in the squad, but hasn't always been. Uh, Emmanuel Imaniki will probably lead the line. He's a good player, actually. Uh, I think probably their best player is actually in goal. So Vincent Eniyama, I think he's one of the maybe top 10 keepers in Europe. Uh, he's a very, very key, uh, strong keeper. Been around. He started playing when he was about seven. Uh, so he's got bags and bags of experience. And, uh, you know, this is a... This is a team that won the 2013 Africa Cup of Nations. They're a good team. Uh, they they will probably not play um, in the way that you expect them to, though. So I think they're probably going to set up in what looks like a kind of 4-3-3, but with John Obi Mikel in more of an attacking role than the, the defensive role he gets at Chelsea, which might surprise a few people. But, of course, that's where he started. So when he was a United player, he was a number 10. Not that he ever played for United. But he was a United player at one stage. Is that an odd fact? Absolutely. So uh, United made a £12 million profit on his very dodgy 20 days with the club. So lots of question marks around this team. Uh, how do they? How does their back four uh, make up? Um, I think in, in Omero and Obabona, uh, probably their back, you know, two central defenders, probably. Enyama, a very good keeper, as I said. Uh, through midfield, Probably going to play with Mikel in an attacking position. Do they get Ogu in there and Anazi? Uh, another couple of kind of creative players there. I, I think the question mark is uh, whether they can translate some of the 
a kind of efficiency of their 2013 Africa Cup of Nations win because I don't think they were a beautifully attacking side or anything like that into a bigger stage. Uh, there's lots of question marks about this team. Are they good enough to qualify? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I mean, it's, it's always really interesting to me, like the relationship between success at the Africa Cup of Nations and the World Cup. There's a real lack of correlation, isn't there, between the African sides that do well at the World Cups and, and those that have recently won Africa Cup of Nations. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they if they break that trend. They, they've definitely got a group they can get out of, though, haven't they? They've got a group they can get out of. The interesting thing is, I think some of the better players are not playing at the big European clubs, you know? So there's there's been times in the, the history of Nigerian football when they've had some kind of big names. And I'm not sure that they do right now. And, you know, as we saw a year ago, they, they've got a good collective, though, haven't they? There's definitely quality in this team. I think they could potentially qualify, but it's, it's really tight. You know, those games between Bosnia, Nigeria and Iran, it's going to be really hard to call. And one of the reasons it's hard to call is because Iran are a very good side. Not perhaps what people expect, but they qualified very well. I mean, they, they out-qualified South Korea, uh, for example, in Asia, uh, went to Korea having to get a result and got a result a couple of games before the end of the tournament. In Carlos Kiroz, they have a, a coach of you know vast experience. Obviously, we know him from United time. He's going to play exactly how you expect a Carlos Kiroz side to play. They're going to play 4-5-1, 4-3-3. Um, they've they've got some very high quality players in that squad too. I think uh, Nekunam, the captain, is kind of a really creative player. I think you'll you'll like a lot of what you see from him. Sojai, also Spanish based, another midfielder, uh, and Safarid is uh, going to score the goals. He scored quite a few. You know, quite a young player. De Jega, you, you'll have seen at Fulham. Yeah, had an excellent second half of the season, didn't he? So they've got some good players, got a lot of creativity. They're a good unit together. Gieros is he's getting, you know, really rave reviews. He hasn't fallen out with the management. Not all those classic things. They're one real problem, and it is a massive problem. They're gonna go into the tournament undercooked. Because they, they spent three months after qualifying without a game for a start. Uh, and then when they have had some games, they're playing some really poor quality opposition. It's because none of the top tight sides will play them because of economic sanctions. And it's hit them really hard. And uh, so they're going to go in having played no one of any quality whatsoever. Uh, Andy Mitten put out a really brilliant episode of the United We Stand podcast um, where, because he went to Iran to interview Kerosh for 442 uh, and just like talked to a load of Iranians about football in Iran and the national team and what they thought of Kerosh and they all seemed to love him. And it was absolutely fascinating to hear because they are in a, in a, unique spot in world football aren't they they're the only side at this world cup who are properly you know on the outs with the rest of the international community aren't they well they are and they have a lot of home-based players i mean but this is a football country right they you know they love football yeah, in absolutely. Iran. They, they often get domestic games with over a hundred thousand people at the games you know this is it's a football mad country it's really important to them. Qualification was celebrated wildly. And they've got some good players. You know, I, I, I don't think there is a lot between this side and Nigeria and Bosnia. I think Bosnia have a, the thinner squad of the three, but maybe the best first 11 of the, the three that are not leading the group. Um, Nigeria, they have, a, they have a good side and a good squad. Uh, and Iran, 
we'll see. You know, they've they've possibly got the best creative players of of that set of three. Uh, I think it's all going to come down to the details. Perhaps not the best creative players of the group as a whole, <laughs> given no of of the <laughs> yeah. three that are playing for Absolutely. second place, and that is an assumption they're playing for second and place. And I think one of the things about this group, from what you've said, is like first of all, I'm now incredibly excited about watching all these games. Um, but also, it, it sounds like it's pretty much the perfect level of opponent for Argentina because they're not going to go into the following round undercooked. Um, but also they're probably, they're going to have too much quality, um, but they're, they're going to get a good, a good sort of, you know, it's a good ramp up, isn't it? It's a good ramp up for Argentina. They're also playing a lot of games close to their base. So they're playing all their games in the South of Brazil. So it's not going to be hot. They don't have to do much traveling. They've got three decent sides they're playing, but not super quality. I, I think they're going to build and uh, that's good for Argentina. Um, it's you know perhaps not good for their opponents, but let's just make the assumption Argentina win all their three games. And so the really fascinating games in this group are the ones between Nigeria Iran and Bosnia. Absolutely. So hit me up with some fun facts, Ed. Well, I gave you one about Iran. So it's, it's over a year since they qualified. That's the other thing about the Asian qualification. Uh, and and they didn't play a game for 119 days after that. And then after that, they've played some absolute dross. Absolute dross. So there you go. Bosnia, they played their first game as a national team in 1993 against Iran in Tehran. Funnily enough, yeah, I don't know if that's a fun fact, but it's a an interesting fact. It, it made it literally made me go. Ah, oh. oh, there you go. There you go. There's two high quality fun facts for you. <laughs> it's good. Um, all right, Group G. G is for Germany, Ghana, Portugal, and the USA. G whiz, I can't work out how to fit them into this riff. Um, Germany are obviously the standout side in this group. Port- Nine. <laughs> Portugal and Ghana pose pretty significant threat, I'd say. And the USA have got fine record in recent tournaments, but I was talking to Josh at Amplified to Rock on his podcast uh, the other day, and he was saying he doesn't think it's a vintage crop uh, of the US. Uh, Splitter. <laughs> it's not. Uh, they've obviously got an incredibly tough draw, so I think it's probably fair to write the US off. But Germany, do you, Ed, 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 do you A, write off the Germans, or B, not write off the Germans? Uh, I remember what um, uh, Fantasy Football League, uh, Bedeal and Skinner wrote about the Germans. Check that one on YouTube. That's what I think about the Germans. No, I'm kidding. I think they've got a very good <laughs> side, Germany. Uh, I, I like watching them play. I think they've evolved into a very fine attacking unit. Uh, bags and bags of talent all through their squad uh, they've got to be one of the favorites for the tournament absolutely but how they must wish this tournament was in europe because in 2012 they looked to me like a team on the verge of greatness i spent the whole european championships thinking my goodness they're gonna really wish the 2014 world cup was in europe um because i think if it was then maybe spain would still be the favorites but if not, Germany would be uh, be running them extremely close. They're playing their games in Fortaleza, Recife, and Salvador, so it's um, that's a tough that's a tough geographical location. And I think they're also up in that part of the country for the next round as well. So, what's the implications of that? Is that like further further north gets hotter, all that sort of thing? Yeah, further north is hotter. Yeah, sort of south of the equator. Uh, I mean, they're, they're playing in the Brazilian winter, but. It's um it's tropical once you get uh, towards the north and and the implications are that they play uh, whoever comes out of of Group F which is Belgium Algeria Russian Korea yeah um so still coached by Yogi Love um 
He's been the coach of the national side since 2006. And before that, he was assistant to Klinsman from 2004 to 2006. But that's just a really long time in international football terms, isn't it? Really long time with exactly the same haircut. It's never changed. It is a bowl cut. The same shirt, the same the same everything. Uh, he's built the definitive high-pressing technical 4-2-3-1, right? It's, it's less reliant on possession than Spain, possessed of more power. But, like, key players, right? Each of these teams broke out the key players. Looking at... Germany squad basically they're in pretty much their entire first 11 I've left a couple of people out but Neuer, Lahm, Schweinsteiger, Kurz, Müller, Erzil, Royce, Goetze I mean what? Pretty good. Yeah it's ridiculous uh, you could say that maybe they've got a few issues at centre half like for some reason Hummels hasn't replicated his Dortmund form for Germany they play Mertesacker still plays a lot and he's like technically like a good good defender but you know, we all we'll know what Mertesacker's weaknesses are. Built like a tank, turns like one. Yeah, and he'll play with Boateng, who I, I don't think is a great defender. I mean, I, I think Hummel's an outstanding player, but uh, you're right, he's been in and out of the Germany side. And, you know, I wonder whether they'll find a way to get him in there. He's got the tournament experience. He's got the big game experience. He's he's a higher quality defender than the other two. Yeah, absolutely. United Connections. <laughs> all of them, right? Ron Robert Zeeler. Yeah, OK, so actual United real life connections Ron Robert Zeeler is their third choice keeper probably um and he was a, a youth teamer at United um didn't quite make the make the grade went back home to Germany but by the end of I reckon not this transfer window but the end of the summer transfer window 2015 there will not be a single player in this Germany squad that United have not been linked to at some point <laughs> maybe not some of the buying lads although we seem to be doing a good job with Getting linked with them too, yeah. We'll be we'll be linked to them in unrealistic fashion. It's reached a point where I actually saw someone say on Twitter the Schweinsteiger to United seems a bit more realistic than some of the transfers we've been discussing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So so the interesting thing about Germany is they, they're probably going to do a Spain and play with uh, Mara Goetze yeah. up front, right, and as a false nine. And uh, interesting because he's a very technical player. He can play with the ball in front of him, definitely. You know, he's a, he's a player who can play like that, but they've gone with a squad with one striker and he's like 900 and something in uh, Klerzer. I mean, yeah, and, and of course, Klerzer is a big World Cup for him because he could break the record, couldn't he, on Ronaldo's home turf. Um, but the, he has to be able to walk to be able to score goals, so we'll see. Well, they invented the Zimmer frame in Germany. That's what it's for. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and Podolski is sort of a striker sometimes as well, isn't he? Um, he certainly played up front with Klerzer quite And a lot. Thomas Muller. I mean, they're, they're going to be Spain, right? They're going to play with like 17 midfielders and and try and dominate possession. But I think uh, your analysis at the beginning about how Germany play is right. It's not all about possession. They most definitely do play with some pace and they've got lots and lots of pace in all those creative players. I think they're a really, really good side. Yeah, I think that it is more likely that Spain will win the World Cup than Germany. Um, but I don't quite know what I'm basing that on. It's some sort of instinct. But then you think like maybe they lack a little bit for pace in the centre of the park, but... I don't think pace is going to be the standout factor at this World Cup, really. Especially not the games played in, in the tropical conditions, you know. Well, making the assumption they play with Schweinsteiger and Cruz yeah. in, in the central midfield, I think that's probably how they'll, at least how they'll start the tournament. Say they start the opening game with, say, Muller, Ozil, Royce and Goetze. 
there's there's just tons of pace there. Yeah, you're right. It's pace all over the place Absolutely. in attacking. And then they'll just try and control midfield. What they don't have is a player who might break ahead of the ball. Maybe Schweinsteiger will. Of course, Cruz can play as a number 10. He probably won't in this in this Germany side unless they switch him out with Ozil, which they, they could do. And Ozil could play wider or not play at all. Uh, or Lahm could play in a, a holding role, as we've seen him do for... Bayern uh, frequently and and Kroos could play further forward as he's done for Bayern frequently too. I mean it's interesting you wonder how much Love's been watching Pep at Bayern and how much that's going to have an influence. I suspect Lam's just going to play fullback all the way through the tournament. I don't know why I just think you know it's that Love's been playing with that group of players for a really long time knows them really well and you'd think but they have an option, yeah, right? Because yeah. no, they uh, they've right. got Grosskreutz, who's an outstanding fullback in his own right. Yeah. So uh, they definitely have options there. I mean, in fullback, they're they're well. You know, Schmelzer on the other side, they're well served. I think absolutely. Um, so, odd fact about Germany, and it's like it's only really because it's Germany that you could say this was an odd fact. But they haven't won a major international tournament since 1996. It is starting to get on a bit isn't it? It's like, you know, we're starting to be at the the outside edges of how long it is between Germany winning international tournaments. And and I think the next Euros is probably their time, right? This generation is just slightly on the wrong cycle, isn't it? It's just, you might might think this would be the the peak years of of this generation and the World Cup in Brazil is going to be a huge ask for them. Well, yes, but in two years' time, I I mean, I think you're right. They've actually got quite a young squad, right? Yeah, absolutely. Still. uh, There's very few players... Apart from Closer, uh, they'll have very few players that will drop out of the squad in two years' time for age reasons. If they could find a striker, uh, if they could find a really good quality striker, yeah, that'd make a big difference. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's in the wrong location for them, and, and they'll probably come up just a little bit short. But uh, my bet's on the semi-final for Germany. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think when we come to Belgium's group, Group H, which is who they'll be playing assuming Belgium can win that group and assuming Germany win their group then you'd think passage to the quarterfinal is likely but there are things standing in the way of Germany winning their group and that those things are mostly Cristiano Ronaldo uh, Portugal or Cristiano Ronaldo and 10 other blokes as they're known in both real life and definitely in Cristiano Ronaldo's head. Coached by Paolo Bento, who took over from the disastrous reign of Carlos Quiros, popular in Iran, but not so popular in Portugal. You can't say that very often, can you? <laughs> no, you can't. Used to manage Sporting Lisbon, lines Portugal up in a 4-3-2-1. Uh, no, sorry, a 4-3-2 and Ronaldo formation. It's a 4-3-3, really. They struggled in qualifying. They really did struggle in qualifying, but Bento's had just agreed a uh, contract extension to the end of the next Euro, so they obviously not blaming him for that. Uh, their playoff with Sweden was just a fantastic game, the second leg, which was it was billed as Zlatan versus Ronaldo, and it really was Zlatan versus Ronaldo um, in a way that doesn't normally happen. I mean, the key players list, we could talk about some other players, but it, it really is Ronaldo. They, they do have other good good talents but without Ronaldo they are an infinitely worse side so maybe you could mention Jao Moutinho who's instrumental uh, in their 
relative success in Euro 2012 and in that playoff. William Carvalho, some United interest there as, as he's been frequently linked with us. He looks a fine holding midfielder. Nani, he actually had a pretty good game in the uh, in the friendly against Greece that Portugal just had. So it'll be interesting to see how much he plays. And normally like he'd play on one side of the 4-3-3. You've got Helder Postiga still leading the line for Portugal. Why talk about a team that need a centre forward? Portugal have needed a centre forward for since Eusebio, basically. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not far off it, is it? I mean, uh, it, remarkable how many tournaments they've gone into going and everyone's going, hmm, if only they had a centre forward, they'd be uh, be half decent. So what do you think of Carvalho then? Is he going to start at this tournament? Is he going to stick another 5 million euros on his transfer fee? I, I don't know. It, it's really difficult. And I think it really depends on... Because uh, I think like for a defensive midfielder, in a way... A World Cup is not like the ideal scenario to showcase your skills, is it? Because oh, unless you're Nicky Butt, yeah, of course, he was brilliant. I maintain he was brilliant in that World Cup. But you know, for for a defensive midfielder, your real benefit comes over the course of a long season, right? You you do a lot of little things right all the time, and it adds up to a big contribution over time. But you know, if he can stifle some of those German midfield talents in the group stages and maybe if they play Belgium in the in the second round and he has a good game then he could do there's a lot of United connections in this side Nanny's going to play for the national side and United eyes will be looking to see whether Van Hal will keep him around in theory he's like a very Van Hal player right if good Nanny would be perfect in a Van Hal system yes yeah, so we just haven't had good Nanny for at least two years so um it, it gets to the point that that's just theoretical rather than practical yeah Someone whose connection with United uh, is now entirely theoretical, in spite of uh, people never stopping going on about him. Uh, some lad called Cristiano used to play for us, apparently. Uh, although Man, used to play for us. He, he scored, what, you know, 49 goals in 110 internationals. Is it? Is it? It's not very good. He goes over a goal a game at domestic level. I think that's slightly because he's in better sides at domestic level. Carvalho, of course, and and but for the but for a faulty fax machine, the man who played in the Champions League final helped Real Madrid win their tenth Champions League. But for a faulty fax machine, would have been a United player. I thought Cohen Chow had a wonderful 2012. And actually, I mean, I know Euro 2012. You said he had a pretty bad season last season, Madrid. But this season, he's been pretty good for Madrid, hasn't he? He has. Yeah. I mean, he's shared the role, of course. But he's he's been pretty good. He'll be going into the tournament uh, actually in decent form. Uh, he'll play left back, not not in midfielders. As has happened occasionally, not that occasionally. I don't think he's ever really fulfilled the price tag. He was over €30 million Euros when he went to Real Madrid. That's a hell of a lot of money to play for a left-back, isn't it? Uh, won't see that happening very often, except maybe this summer at United. <laughs> it's just about yeah. to happen. So, yeah, a remarkable thing, that, isn't it? Uh, it? Just didn't fax it across in time. Is football the only industry that still uses the facts? It must be on the outs, surely. Bizarre. It's bizarre. Talking of facts, these are just the facts. Oddest fact about Portugal is unquestionably Cristiano Ronaldo's eyebrows. In the semi-final, he'd gone too far. By the final, they'd filled out slightly, leading me to wonder whether he deliberately tried to organise his eyebrows so they would be perfect by the time the Champions League final rolled around. I, He's saying he overplucked. I would not put it past it. You look at the pictures from the semi-final. His eyebrows look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> also, the other weird fact about Portugal is that they are ranked third in the FIFA World Rankings. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, that is a failure 
of the algorithm <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah, definitely not the third best side in this tournament. You'd expect them to qualify from this group, though? Uh, you would probably expect them to qualify from this group, but they have a capacity to misfire, and if they do misfire, um, they're going to have trouble with Ghana, I would suspect. African teams have the coolest nicknames, and the Black Stars will come to the World Cup eager to right the wrongs of cheaty, cheaty Luis Suarez in their defeat to Uruguay in 2010. He'd never cheat, would he, Luis Suarez? Never. Um, Akwesi Apia is the uh, the coach, a local coach, uh, which is relatively rare in the African teams. His performance at the last Africa Cup of Nations was not so impressive, but they beat Egypt 6-1 in qualifying, which is obviously like huge in African qualifying. Egypt, a traditional powerhouse of uh, African football. Yeah, absolutely battered them. Yeah, I actually watched that game, which was unusual because I didn't, I didn't actually, I mean, you know, it's... Wall to wall European football, uh, aren't we in Europe? Funnily enough, uh, yeah. So um, I didn't watch an awful lot of the African teams in qualification. Although I did, I did watch a lot of the Africa Cup of Nations a year ago. What I read about that game was that Michael Essien was incredibly dominant and and sort of rolled back the years in that game and running up and down and and pulling all the strings. Would that be your take? Yes, um, it's it's a very rare occasion when Michael Essien does that anymore, though. I mean, I think he has gone. I mean, at his peak, he was such a brilliant midfielder. I mean, United missed out on him big time, didn't they, when Chelsea outbid United for him all those years ago. Real shame. They've got some good players, Garner. I, I mean... I thought they were rubbish when they played Holland recently. Uh, quite a few United fans might have seen that because it was on MUTV, but uh, they they were rubbish and they lumped a load of long balls forward and they looked really basic. And they were missing quite a few of their big names. Fair enough. Yeah, and they and they sort of grew into that game a bit. I thought they looked a bit overawed early on in the defence. I mean, their defence is really going to be problematic for them. Um, and also Jerry Akaminko. It, like, he didn't look brilliant, but he is like one of their first choice centre-halves and he went off on a stretcher right at the end of that game. Key players, Michael Essien, uh, Kevin Prince-Boateng, who's come back from international retirement in time for the World Cup. Funny that. Funny. Suleiman Tari, Asamoah Jan. Um, yeah, checkbooks, Asamoah yes. Jan. Is he still raking in the money in the Middle East? He is, and it's really sad, I think. Well, I mean, it's not sad for him. Obviously, he's perfectly happy, but um, yeah, he's a brilliant player on his day, Asamoah Jan. He was fantastic for Sunderland. It's, it's kind of a shame. I, it's funny you mentioned Essien and United. I put United connection none, but wouldn't it have been nice if Essien had signed for us instead of Chelsea? Um, uh, there is some United connection, actually, because Asamoah Jan's footballing hero is Eric Cantona. He may have bad bad taste in club size, but he's got... Show me a player whose footballing hero is not Eric Cantona. <laughs> and you'll show me a liar. So the USA, a very tough draw for them, uh, makes it unlikely that they'll build on recent successes because they've been a sort of, you know pretty much a perennial figure at the World Cup in recent years, haven't they? And we, we've sort of got to a point where you kind of half expect them to get out of qualifying. But this is a rock-hard group and it's not a vintage crop. No, it isn't. Left Le- Donovan at home as well. And uh, which uh, Jürgen coach... Yeah, sorry, I cut you off as just as you were going to say Jürgen Klinsmann's the coach. But uh, I, I assume you saw the tweet from Jürgen Klinsmann's son laughing at that... Uh, that squad announcement. Well, yeah, although all he did was lol, right? And, you know, kids lolling on Twitter, they, they're not actually laughing. They're just they're just shocked. But yes, he got in trouble and learned a harsh lesson, apparently, according to Jürgen. So uh, he was the manager of Germany, of course, in 2004, and then had a disastrous spell at Bayern Munich. 
but even when he was managing Germany, he was living in California, and the lifestyle obviously agrees with him because he's been in charge of the USA since 2011, signed up till 2018. Pretty much plays a 4-4-2 um, with the USA, which he didn't at Germany, but he, he does with the USA. And Scotland fans will be delighted to note that Bertie Vokes is uh, along for the ride as assistant manager for this World Cup. So key players, Landon Dot... Wait, what? Why did he do that? Oh. Well, in that case, uh, Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, Michael Bradley, who uh, is generally... Good player. Yeah, he's essentially the man who's replaced London Donovan in the squad. I do think it's kind of an odd decision to take Donovan, and I wonder if it's that he was going to play Bradley ahead of Donovan, and so he decided he just didn't want the the a kind of superstar sulker kicking about the place. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it is. it feels like a personal decision rather than a footballing one because uh, he's, you know, he's still good enough to make it into this squad. It, the squad, yeah, but definitely not the first team from, from everything that I've been uh, reading about it. Weaknesses, defence, defence, defence. Uh, they have a combination of either not enough experience or too much experience in their back four. They they have to beat Ghana in the in the first game, and I don't think they will. They could, but I I think Ghana will cause them problems. If they don't win that game, that means they're going to have to be going for it against Portugal and Germany, and they're just going to get ripped apart in the counter attack. I suspect United connections. Uh, Tiho plays in goal for them and used to play for us. That's about it. I've got to give a shout out to Kyle Beckerman's beard and dreadlocks combination, bringing back fond memories of Alexi Lalas, and uh, also as previously mentioned i'm a big fan of their away kit um but it is red white and blue which i think means there's a color clash with every other team in the tournament except like ivory coast yeah we we probably won't ever see it yeah nigeria and ivory coast it might be okay but yeah they haven't followed fifa's directive but they are the usa 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 so they can do whatever the hell they like yeah and uh could they bomb fifa actually a lot of people would advocate that (laughs) is fifa a country do they have any oil? It's more powerful. Let, let's the put the rumour out there. It might happen. Um, Kyle Beckerman looks like he's in a roots band from, you know, the deepest south, doesn't he? Classic stuff. Absolutely. I like it. I'm fond of that look. I mean, a lot of people mock the uh, the the white man dread look, but when, when it gets pulled off like that, I, I don't think you can disrespect it. He's got a very strong hair and beard game. I think that Germany and Portugal are going to qualify from that group in that order. Not particularly going out on a limb to say that i think you're right i think they will i think there's a gap between those two and the the rest of the the uh, the quality in that group and uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all i think germany will win that group i think they'll beat portugal in that game i think they will win all three and they'll end up playing second place in group f which is not a strong group no absolutely and i mean i think you know i think that too but you can't assume that a team with Cristiano Ronaldo and it's going to lose can you it's like it's it is just such a massive x factor for Portugal that if Ronaldo's really on his game he's he becomes unstoppable yeah but but he's one man in 11 and uh, that, that Portugal side hasn't Absolutely. always uh, uh, you know leveraged that in the right way no absolutely so group h so yeah finally we're into group h uh, two and a half hours of recording here sorry Everyone listening, uh, and I hope I hope you haven't listened to this in one go, folks. If you have, give g- give us a message, drop us a message, tell us how you're doing at this stage. Yeah, um, maybe you could raise money for charity uh, or something <laughs> like that. So this is the group of Adnan Janu Janu Jazhan's Jam or whatever he was called. Well, hey, I, I did say earlier in the season that if you got a World Cup call up, he would uh, convert. 
uh, to not not <laughs> I was going to say a religion then I'm not quite sure good as though this Belgian side is that they are a religion just yet but they might be after this and I think they're so good this Belgian side that they are not dark horses they're actually legitimately a good side does that is that okay yeah I, I mean yeah I, I think the best of their players are phenomenal and they don't have that many weaknesses but if they won the World Cup, it would be a minor miracle. Yes, it would be a massive shock. So uh, where they're good is in attacking scenarios. So Lukaku and uh, Azard uh, and Dembele and De Bruyne um, will be supported by Chadley. Probably had a really good season at Tottenham. Witzel will probably anchor the midfield. Fellaini might play, although I don't think it's obvious that he'll start. I think they'll actually play with one holding player there, given the, the quality of the group. So we, you know, maybe they'll bring on Fellaini later, who does play in this kind of box-to-box role. Mark Vilmarks has been, the manager's been moaning that United didn't use him in the right way. It's at the back that's the question for me, because they've got players who are great on paper. So company, outstanding, obviously, and then probably joined by Vertonghen, Van Aalen and Olderweider um, from Atletico Madrid. So, you know, three excellent players there. Uh, have they really produced excellent form this season? Not sure about that. And in Courtois, they've obviously got one of the world's great keepers, a young keeper, but outstanding already. There's no doubt about his quality. So, you know, 1 to 11, very, very good. Problems, no Christian Benteke snapped his Achilles. And that is a problem because they had used him as a kind of target man. And Lukaku is not a target man. And, you know, as good as he is, pacey as he is, he likes the ball in front of him. That's changing the way they're going to play. They're going to have to get Hazard closer to him in order for the tactics to work. That's going to stretch them through midfield. And, and you know, so there's some question marks for Vilmots to work out there. Outside of the first 11, I think they have some issues, you know. So uh, Stefan Defoe didn't make the most of his careers in the squad. Fellaini's in the squad. Don't think he's very good. Dries Martins, yeah don't think so Kevin Morales will probably play up front I didn't mention him earlier in in one of their kind of wider areas or at least he'll swap but shall we did he did he, did he make the squad I actually can't remember now Standard Liège forward uh, will probably be back up but they're going to hope that Lukaku stays fit um, entirely because you know it, a lot of this is on him now that said this is the best Belgium side since 1986 no doubt about it and it's probably well we, we yet to see but it's certainly on paper stronger has as more quality in more different areas than that than any Belgium side ever you know you haven't even mentioned Yanazai you said you mentioned Morales and I nearly went boo boo Kevin Morales boo who <laughs> who said that Yenazai shouldn't make the squad so so Vilmot said that Yenazai's along for the experience and he'll be watching from the bench I mean he basically came out and said that right so so either you take that at face value and say that Yenazai is unlikely to play or uh, it's the ace that he's going to pull out and Yenazai is, is going to play and you know the the thing is I think actually Benteke getting injured increases the chances of Yanazai playing. And the reason for that is that Lukaku is not going to hold the ball up in the same way. They're going to get have to get players closer to him. Uh, and I think Yanazai is more comfortable playing that kind of whole floaty role around the, the main forward than Morales is. So there's an increased chance of him playing just tactically. We'll see. You know, he's a kid. He hasn't been part of the, 
the uh, the qualification process. He's an outsider. Didn't have a great second half of the season with United, really, but we know how much talent he's got. Massive, massive amount of talent. You know, it'd be silly not to use him at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, he might not have had a great second half of the season, but when he was played, he mostly did. Like, especially right at the end of the season, that, that whole game, he was absolutely electric. And, and, you know, he is the kind of player that could make a real dent on a World Cup because he's completely fearless. So he's going to come on and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm Adnan Yenazai. Like, this is what I do. I play in front of 75,000 people every week, you know, when, when he plays. And he's had a lot of experience in a very short time. Maybe, like... Not necessarily a minutes played, a lot of experience, but been around champions and all that kind of stuff. And and I I just think if if you keep him on the bench and you you're chasing a game or you know something like that, and you're not thinking about unleashing Yanazai, it means you haven't watched him enough because he's ready, as far as I'm concerned. Right, you know, I said at the start of the season I wasn't sure he was ready, and then then he proved me completely wrong. So yeah, why why not? You know, he's certainly got the quality. Other factors in Belgium's favour, they play all their games in the south of the country. They're located in Sao Paulo. Their longest trip is about half an hour in a plane logistically, which will be a problem at this World Cup. We haven't really talked about it. I've, I've you know, kind of hinted at it. I think they're in sound order. I think they'll get out of this group. I think they'll win the group. I think they'll win all three games, actually. So um, not that I think they're going to go win the World Cup or they're as good as the other top sides, but I think they're lucky. They're in a fortunate position. They've got a, a very good core of players, lots of attacking talent, and uh, and not a very good group. So, so alongside them uh, is Russia. And this is not a good Russia side. This is a Russia side with quite a lot of over-30s. And, you know, with all the the travel and some of the heat, again, they play all their games in the south. That might be a problem for them. Uh, I think they were very, very disappointing a couple of years ago, weren't they, Uh, in the Euros. uh, I think I I don't see much quality in this squad at all. Their real creating heart is Degoyev, um, who is the one creative player in midfield for them. Up front, they've got problems. Kershikov was terrible at the Euros. They've got this guy called Kokorin, who's the Dynamo Moscow forward. I don't know if you've seen much of him, but he's I like the look of him a lot. Um, I think that Capello looks like he wants to build a side round uh, his attacking talents. He's a better option than Kershikov uh, for me. But this is a problem throughout the, the Russian side. It's not necessarily certain who plays in each position. They will probably play with a typical sort of Capello 4-1-4-1, quite defensive in mentality. They've got a lot of older players. I don't think they're very dynamic. Uh, I think basically their strength is at the back and in defence. I think they will be solid. Obviously in Akinfeev, they've got a very, very good goalkeeper. Um, We know a lot about him, seen him a few times. Uh, I think they'll look to keep it very, very tight. Hope you know they'll be thinking. Well, we can beat Algeria and Korea you know, again. Two other not very good teams, um, and let's try and nick something against Belgium. Yeah, absolutely. Or qualify second and probably lose to Germany in the second round. I think pick of the second round ties, assuming Spain and Brazil avoid each other, could be Portugal against Belgium, couldn't it? Yeah, it could be. That could be a very, very good second round tie indeed. And, and I think let's assume that it's going to work out that way. And, and but I think it's not guaranteed that Russia get out of this group, even though. The other two are not very good. So, you know, we take Algeria, uh, the Fennec Foxes. Uh, they've, for a, for a country that has had civil war and economic problems and tribal strife 
you know they've they've built a decent side and they've qualified right so it, it sounds patronizing it's not meant to be it's just this is this is a side built from some adversity they've also been very smart so they've they've picked local weight based players but they've also um, managed to extract quite a lot of players from France and you know the the kind of immigrant community in France as well so players that haven't made it into the French side uh, they've got quite a few uh, a lot of their players in fact didn't even start football in Algeria um, but you know it's an international side as a result um, in uh, Rafik Halice the defender from Academia they have a Luis Suarez look-alike spitting image it could be the same man yeah, have you ever seen the two of them in the room together? I have never seen one of them ever. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, um, you know, this is this is a side that qualified well from uh, Africa. Uh, this is, you know, that's that's uh, as good enough as he is. They've got some good talent. Uh, I like Bentaleb, the Tottenham player. I think Sofiane Faguli, the Valencia midfielder, is excellent creative player um, really really good this season uh, in a good Valencia side so I think they'll be relying on him a lot for the creative part of their game up front Slimani is probably going to start but they've got uh, as their top goal scorer 10 goals so this is where the problem is for them they don't score a lot of goals they haven't got a lot of experience in their their forward areas Probably not a lot of quality either, uh, if I'm honest. Um, I think they'll play quite a defensive-looking side, probably a sort of very on 4-5-1, Slimani will lead the line on his own, and they'll look to break. Uh, and um, it will be in the details as to whether they get out of this group or not. I don't expect they will. No, absolutely. So do you expect that uh, South Korea will get out of the group? Well, the thing is, no, I don't. Uh, they were dreadful in, in qualification. It led to the uh, the disappearance of their old coach and, and Korean legend Hong Myung-bo uh, is now the coach. Uh, you will remember him from World Cups of past. Uh, he played at every World Cup match that South Korea had between 1990 and 2002. There you go. That's a fun fact. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he's, he is a legend. He's he's uh, coached by popular demand. Uh, but this is not a great South Korean side. Um, they will almost certainly try and play on the break. They, they do have some uh, some decent midfielders, Ki Young Sung Jung, Park Jung Woo, uh, Lee Chung Young. But their real problem is up front um, in their principal strikers, Arsenal Reserve, Park Too Young, who can't score for love and definitely not any money. Funnily, when he came to Arsenal, everyone was excited. Well, at least Gunners were excited about him. Uh, He'd scored about three goals in 300 games for Monaco prior to that. Uh, They have a problem scoring goals. I don't expect they're going to score many in these games either. I don't think they'll go through. whether they come third or fourth is dependent on that game against Algeria. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, one last time, I'm going to ask you this, Ed. It's been an absolutely epic podcast. Tell me, you've got some fun facts left? I've given you fun facts. I, I've given you fun facts. Two fun facts there. Hong Myung Bo played every single game in World Cups for Korea between 1990 and 2012. Legend. That's a good fact. Good fact. Good fact. fact. I gave you another Good fact. fact. Algeria are called the Fennec Foxes. Do you know why? Oh, uh, no. No, neither do I. I think the Fennec Foxes are desert foxes. That's what I think it is. That's, that's, that's exactly why. That's off the top of my head. Straight off the top of my dome. Belgium are called the Red Devils. Yeah, so we should all want them to win, right? 
don't know about you, but I've fallen into a pit of World Cup-based delirium, having been extremely excited about the World Cup when we started recording. Now I just wanted to be all over. <laughs> before we go, before listeners, you've done an incredible job sticking with us. I hope you found it of some value. I hope you feel like you kind of, uh, it's like a bit of an audio, one of them pull-out guides in a newspaper, but in audio form. And I hope you feel like you're going into the World Cup with with some players that you weren't necessarily uh, looking out for before that you're looking out for now. A bit more of an understanding of how all these teams are looking likely to match up. And it, and it does sound like there's some some very cool games uh, lined up in the group stages that are not necessarily between the uh, super obvious teams. So very excited about that. Before we go, in Grand Rankcast edition, uh, let's do some predictions. No, we're not going to predict every game between now and next time we record because then we'll be here for another three hours. But we would like to, uh, I'd like to do a few predictions. So so first of all, give us your dark horse then, Ed. Give us your outsider for the tournament that you think's got a genuine chance of like a semi-final place or something. Yeah, well, Belgium. So I, I began that segment by saying they're too good to be a dark horse. Uh, I'm going to revise it. They're a dark horse because <laughs> uh, they've got no chance of winning it. So uh, Belgium are definitely an outside chance. I, I'd have said Bosnia because they qualified really well, but I think their squad's too thin and I think that's going to count in tournament football. Um, I'd be surprised if they go that far. Uh, the top teams for me are, are Brazil, Spain, Germany and Argentina and Belgium are the one, the fifth one there. Maybe Italy, but I'm not sure. And then France, meh, maybe. Uh, France are my pick as a dark horse just because i think i think they've they've got so much talent in that squad that they could come together and and produce something a bit more special than people are expecting all right out of those four top teams uh who are you going for for the win i think brazil are going to win it uh, and i think they're going to win it because they're the least flawed of the very top teams and and that makes it kind of sound a bit negative i actually think them and spain and germany are outstanding teams uh, and holland we didn't even mention holland um, I don't think Holland are in that category this time no, around, though, are they? I, no, I agree with you. I, d- I don't think they are. So I think Brazil are going to win it and uh, because they've got all the attacking talent, uh, they've got a very good balance to their squad, they've got a very smart manager in Scolari and they're at home. I think that's all very good reasons. For purely sentimental reasons, I'm picking a Spain win. I would absolutely love to see it just a part of me that really loves to see sporting excellence but but as i said earlier i'll be delighted to see either brazil spain or argentina uh, win this but but my my little slight heart overhead pick uh, for the winner is going to be spain to pull off something truly miraculous top goal scorers it'd be a, a pretty much a miracle if the top goal scorer comes from spain in the 2010 world cup i believe i predicted that karim benzema would be the uh, golden boot winner that was not the thing which happened uh, I'm slightly tempted to pick him again, but the key to Golden Boot is you want someone that's likely to get a hat-trick in the group stages. Um, and I reckon Neymar could put a few past uh, Australia, so he's a pretty good shout. But And Argentina, from I, I was going to back Messi, but from what you said about Argentina's group, it doesn't sound like there's anyone there they're going to give a tonk into. No, I don't think so. I think that's going to be pretty tight. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. The top goal scorer is normally someone who bags a hat-trick and then a couple of others. Um, although, you know, Neymar uh, is going to be the bigger goal scorer than, say, Fred uh, at, uh, uh, for Brazil. Uh, you could look at some of the Argentinians, Messi, uh, Aguero, Higuain, could all score plenty of goals too. Cristiano Ronaldo? Yeah, but Portugal's group games, I don't see him putting... Well, hat-trick against the USA. It's possible. Uh, maybe Muller. Maybe Wayne Rooney, lol. Danny Welbeck! <laughs> Danny Welbeck. Yeah. 
Danny Welbeck. He is Patrick... that guy. I mean, obviously, he's the player of the tournament, <laughs> uh, but just behind Zlatan. Yeah. No, shut up. That sounds like you're being sarcastic. Unacceptable. No, I, I, I really, really, really hope Danny gets a few goals in this one. Who do you think is going to be like the standout player of the tournament then? Who do you think we're all going to be talking about? I think we're going to be talking about Neymar's World Cup is what I think. I think he, I, I know that's an obvious pick, but I think... Uh, no, it's a great one. I'd love to see that. I think it would be so romantic in a way. Yeah. So he, I know, it's interesting. He's he's had a, he's actually had a very good season for Barcelona in, in what has been a very difficult season relative to Barcelona's recent years, you know, and all the controversy about the money and so on was much more of a political dimension than it was for him. I think the interesting thing about uh, for Brazil, although he'll play off the left, like he's been playing for Barcelona, is kind of where he's been playing for Brazil, right? Whereas with with uh, Barcelona, there was always that tension with, was he going to play through the centre or Messi? Messi was injured for a while. He played through the centre at that point and then got shunted away and there was a status issue, which was interesting. I don't think there is with Brazil. He's the top man. He's their creative force. He's the one that everyone's hoping will lead him to glory and I have to say I think he will yeah absolutely I think Oscar is another player that is going to be a lot of talk about after the World Cup so who do you think is going to flop the hardest at this World Cup then Rooney Rooney Rooney. <laughs> oh, I don't know though can can a player with such low expectations going into a tournament really be considered a flop so I think Luis Suarez is going to bite kick handball nut someone uh, and he'll be the biggest flop that's that's my thought. What about teams wise out of the out of the sort of big teams and the second second tier of big teams? Who do you think is going to have the roughest time? Yeah, so so I think there's definitely an option for Italy and yeah. for Holland to to uh, flop if that's the right word or not progress very far. Holland are in danger, of course, because uh, that that opening game against Spain could really derail their options. I don't think Argentina are going to blow up. Um, I think France have got a, a good chance this time round of doing okay. I mean, the expectations aren't really high. Um, it would be a massive surprise for me if Germany did not do well in this tournament. Uh, you know, the the geography isn't uh, on their side, but uh, at least it's a Winter World Cup. Uh, at least they play their games in the south, and they've got a really outstanding squad. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, how far do you think England will go? I think quarterfinals are a good option for them. I mean, it, it does kind of depend on how the other group plays out. So they'll be playing the winners of Group C. So potentially, what, Colombia um, or... I, I would not be shocked if any of the four teams, even Greece in Group C, won the, that group. I mean, it would be a bit of a shock, let's face it. But Right, so you're talking about a quarterfinal, uh, and if it plays out, they play Brazil in the quarterfinal. So that would be a good tournament for England, I think, given the age of this side and the expectation. Absolutely, and and hopefully, like, if they... If glorious failure against Brazil sounds pretty good. Uh, basically, England are going to more than likely either go out in the group stages or the quarterfinal. It's, it's kind of one or the other, really, isn't it? It's pretty unlikely they'll go out in the second round, but they might do. They are England, after all. We are going to be covering in less depth than this, or at least in less length than this, the whole tournament. So the plan is to release this. Uh, we don't know yet whether you're listening to one episode or the end part of a second episode. Um, we're going to release this, and then uh, the first, the next Rankcast will be out on the second Friday of the World Cup. So not the day after the World Cup starts, but basically a week into the tournament. We'll be uh, wrapping up uh, the, the first set of fixtures uh, from the first round. And 
I, you know, I was joking about being exhausted earlier, but I'm still incredibly excited about the World Cup. I, I can't wait. And if you want to get hold of me or Ed uh, during the during the tournament, um, you can get us on Twitter. I'm at UTD Rantcast. Ed's at United Rant. Get us both at Facebook.com/UnitedRant and read um, all the coverage of the goings on at Manchester United at UnitedRant.co.uk. And you can read what I've got to say about Manchester United and for some reason the Greece national team on the Bleacher Report UK. Very good, yes, and uh, I think we will be exhausted after uh, 5, 8 or 9 and 11 p.m. games and the odd 2 a.m., not too many 2 a.m.s, England have got one of them, I think Ivory Coast and Japan is another one, Uh, it's going to be a lengthy World Cup for me, I'm an insomniac anyway, so uh, I'm going to be enjoy watching three games a day, stroke a night, uh, and then the highlights packages and then reading all the coverage, writing some on the blog, talking about some of it on the pod, and and it'll be a pleasure to be with you throughout this tournament. Thank you for listening to this overlong podcast. Uh, We'll be with you very soon. (laughs) 